Welcome. Welcome to the other side of midnight. We have a really special show tonight. First, I want to let you all know that uh, this is Kinthea, and I am standing in for Richard C. Hoagland, who is in the middle of an ice storm, and not only is his internet down, but his power is down. And we felt this show was too important to postpone. We have many guests on this show that have never been on the show. And we're going to be reporting some groundbreaking work that has been a journey of over 60 years. So the show is called The 60-Year Breakthroughs in Finally Solving the Kennedy Assassination. And our guests are Barbara Honiger and many other guests, which she will introduce as we go along. Um, this is something that this is going to be a, a keeper. This show is definitely going to be a keeper. And I'd like to bring Barbara Honiger on. Let me just share a little bit about Barbara first. She is a high-level government. She served in high-level government positions, including White House Policy Analyst, Special Assistant to the President for Domestic Policy, Director of the Attorney General's Law Review at the Department of Justice, and for more than a decade was the Senior Military Affairs Journalist at the Naval Postgraduate School, the Premier Science, Technology, and National Security Affairs Graduate Research University of the Department of Defense. And many of you, our audience of The Other Side of Midnight, are very familiar with Barbara. She has brought us consistently amazing breakthroughs. And I would like to bring Barbara on now to shepherd this show. Barbara, if you're talking, you're muted. I can see you. Ah, uh, welcome. Welcome <laughs> to the other side of midnight. <laughs> it's it's not a good idea to mute yourself when you're the co-host of a show. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, thank you, Kinthea, for that, You're for that introduction. And um, Kinthea and I will be co-hosting the show tonight. We're we're sorry that Richard Hoagland isn't with us. I hope he is listening tonight. And Richard, if you are listening, um, you are right, as usual. Uh, nothing important, as you always say on the other side of midnight, nothing important is revealed until it's time and now is clearly the time for the world to know the truth about the JFK assassination. For tonight on this show is three historic hours, and in great detail, you will hear live from the man who shot President John F. Kennedy from the grassy knoll. His name is James Files. You are about to meet him. You will hear how James Files was recruited into the CIA's Operation 40 Worldwide Assassination Group by none other than George H.W. Bush, former Vice President and President of the United States, after whom the CIA headquarters is named. You will learn how James Files called David Atlee Phillips, 
who was then the director of the CIA's Western Hemisphere Operations Division at CIA headquarters every day to check in for any instructions. You will hear how David Atlee Phillips was the CIA controller for both James Files and Lee Harvey Oswald in the lead up to the JFK assassination. You will learn that David Atlee handpicked James Files, the man you are about to meet, for black operations worldwide involving assassinations, that Phillips issued the Remington Fireball pistol that James Files personally used with a single mercury-filled bullet to kill JFK on November 22, 1963. And you will learn how Phillips personally checked in on James Files on the grassy knoll behind the picket fence approximately 15 minutes before the assassination. You will learn that James, excuse me, James Files on this show will be joined by the author of the three books on his decades-long career as both a mafia and a CIA mercenary hitman, and that is his wife, Pamela Ray Files. You will also hear from longtime associate of James Files and Pamela Ray Files, former Marine Corps officer and former Virginia State Trooper James Scott, whom I will be introducing in a moment. You will also hear from Shanna Gale Willis, who filmed, who, whose father, Phil Spanauer, filmed the JFK assassination live for the CIA. And you will hear from longtime JFK researcher and, like myself, a regular on the other side of midnight, Robert Morningstar. So thank you for being here, our audience, for this historic show. And what I'd like to do first is to let the audience who doesn't already know about this um, what to do uh, on the website. So the audience members should have opened the uh, the other side of midnight.com and when you open that uh, you want to click in the upper left hand menu you want to in the upper left hand corner of the home page you want to click on tonight's show and the next page that opens is the show page and that's where you should be throughout this program throughout these three hours so if you scroll down just a little bit I think you're going to see the banner for tonight's show with the Life Magazine cover with the photo of President John F. Kennedy. And then if you scroll down a little bit below that, um, you will start seeing the bios uh, and the photographs of tonight's guests uh, for future reference. And most importantly for the remainder of the show, keep scrolling down to the last photo and bio of Robert Morningstar, and at the bottom of Robert's bio text, you will see links for what are called items. And those are my, Barbara Honiger's items, so it will say Barbara, and there are Shauna Gale Willis's items, and that should say Shanna, and there are Robert Morningstar's items, and that will say Robert. So right now, what you should do is to click Barbara under items. So it says items for the show items and then just click on my name, Barbara. And that should go straight to the first of my items. Barbara? Yeah. Yes. 
forgive me, but I just want to clarify something for future audiences because not everyone will be listening tonight. The show tonight is listed in the nav bar. In the future, you can go to the show catalog and you will scroll through and you will see the banner that shows the Life magazine cover. And this is the title you will look for, The 60-Year Breakthroughs in Finally Solving the Kennedy Assassination. So if this is not, if you're listening on another night, folks, you're not going to see the show in the NAV bar. The second thing I want to say to make things easier is throughout the page, we have what is called fast links. And right under the banner, you'll see it says guest page, fast links to items, fast links to bios. That little grouping of links is scattered all throughout the page. So you can navigate through the page very quickly without doing a lot of scrolling. So if you were on the page and you saw the banner, you just scroll down a little and it'll say guest page and then it'll say fast links to items. Just click on Barbara and you will be there. And take it away, Barbara. Okay. So what I'd like to do in a very brief introduction to the show before I introduce James Scott, Jim Scott, who will in turn introduce James Files, who shot JFK from the grassy knoll and is uh, making a public confession worldwide tonight on this program. What I'd like to do is first, very briefly, if you could, if the audience could go to Fast Links to Items, click, as Cynthia just said, on my name, Barbara, and that will take you to my items. So my very first item um, for your future reference Um, although you could click on it now if you wanted to, um, is is Jim Scott, I'm about to introduce him to you, a longtime associate of James and Pamela Files. Um, Jim Scott uh, was the host for an historic event in Dallas this November 21st, the day before the 60th anniversary. I helped to co-host it with him. And item number one, If you click on it, um, you will open the entire PowerPoint slides in um, PDF format so that it can be posted on the internet here for you. The entire PowerPoint slides from that historic November 21st live event with James Files in Dallas. And I invite you and encourage everyone to carefully read every single slide. You won't be able to do this tonight on the show because we're going to be going into the actual interviews on this show, but it's it's very important. Um, Also, my number two, this is very important. Thanks to Robert Morningstar, who is a guest on this show tonight, Um, longtime JFK researcher, passionate researcher for the truth about the JFK assassination. Robert Morningstar single-handedly arranged for the London Times, for the D.C., top D.C. correspondent in Washington, D.C., for the London Times to do a credible coverage of what James Files said in an interview with him. His name is Hugh Tomlinson, and if you click on my item number two, you will be able to read that article from the London Times, which was a true breakthrough. To my knowledge, and I believe also Robert Morningstar's knowledge, this is the first major mainstream press 
publication outlet that has credibly covered the truth about who shot JFK from the Grassy Knoll. Um, number three is an extremely important item. Um, this is if you click on uh, the, the words, the Operation Zipper document, it will open uh, to, the, to this critical document that is online. And it is the, effectively the, the minutes or the record of the meetings of the Star Chamber Court-Martial. It was effectively a Star Chamber Court-Martial uh, where the participants who made the decision at the highest level of the U.S. government throughout and across the U.S. government to assassinate JFK in public. You will read in the zipper documents of the meetings beginning in March of 1963 for months and months and months leading up to the assassination of the actual meetings, who was there. And this includes the then CIA director, John McCone. It includes representatives of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the top military officers in the Pentagon, the top representative for the FBI, top representative for the State Department, James Jesus Angleton, who was the head of counterintelligence for the CIA. The bottom line is the entire superstructure of the executive branch and the military and intelligence of the US government decided secretly without his knowledge to assassinate JFK. And you must read the Operation Zipper document. Number four in my items, this is extremely important, it's a book called The Inheritance by a man who calls himself Christopher Fulton. Now, Christopher Fulton, we now know, is not his real name. Every American and everyone in the world should read this book. Because what this book is about is the fact that this man, who's, who we have reason to believe, there is evidence, that he is actually an illegitimate son of Robert Kennedy, who, of course, was JFK's brother and the attorney general under President John F. Kennedy. Now, there's reason to believe that Christopher Fulton is actually uh, a son of Robert Kennedy. And if so, that would make sense of why the book is called The Inheritance, which is otherwise a mystery. What you read in this book is the literal hell that the Department of Justice and the U.S. government put Christopher Fulton, a.k.a. Christopher Fulton, through for the sin of owning the Cartier watch that JFK was wearing on his left wrist in the limousine in Dallas and Dealey Plaza. And the reason that they literally made him, put him on the most wanted terrorist list, arrested him, put him in prison, tortured him, put him in solitary confinement, all to try to get him to give up the watch. So why was the watch so important? It was so important because it had traces of mercury from James Files' mercury-filled bullet. The single bullet in his pistol that he used from the grassy knoll to shoot JFK. And the very fact that there could be a piece of evidence, this Cartier wristwatch that Jackie had given for their anniversary, that it had traces of the mercury on it, that watch with traces of mercury alone proved that Oswald did not shoot that bullet. Okay, so that's why the book The Inheritance is so critically important, because as you will see, 
it was James Files who used the mercury-filled bullet to kill GS, uh, JFK from the grassy knoll. Uh, number five, and we're almost done with my items, and I'm going to introduce Jim Scott, who will introduce James Files himself. Um, number five in my items is the cover of the book Regicide. Now, this book was published some years ago, and what's important about it, as you, if you can, if you can read down below, um, at the back of this book, in the original edition, which is extremely difficult to get, it's not available on Amazon anymore. Um, but every once in a while, you can find a copy on something like abeabe.com, which is a rare books online uh, source. But this original, this original edition of the book Regicide by Gregory Douglas, in the appendix, it contained the Operation Zipper document. And that document was leaked to the author by none other than Robert Crowley, who was the former assistant deputy director for clandestine, that means black ops, for the CIA. He had the zipper document which cataloged meetings beginning in March of 1963 by the absolute top level of the executive branch military and intelligence of the U.S. government, who together deliberated and decided to have JFK killed in Dallas. Barbara? Okay. Yes. Barbara? I want to let the audience know that while there is not a printed copy there is a Kindle version of the book, and the, I link to it on that item. The image links to the Kindle version of the book. Well, the Kindle version of the book, in my understanding, does not have the zipper document in the back, and that's why it's mm. so important. That's why it's so important to go to the link, and I have put the zipper document online at the link in number five. Okay. Great. Great. Okay. And finally, finally, before I introduce Jim Scott, who will introduce James Files, um, at the bottom, number six in my items, is the flyer. If you click on that, it comes up large, and you can read the flyer that was distributed uh, widely, widely to the two major JFK anniversary, 60th anniversary conferences, and the this is the flyer for this historic November 21st event, where James Files was James Files was the keynote witness and speaker, and you can read that for yourself. And that flyer was uh, reproduced in the Dallas Morning News Sunday paper in the front A section that has a circulation of a minimum of 600,000. So those are, my, those are my items. And what I would now like to do is move straight into the meat of the program. And I'm going to now introduce, if I can get to that page in a moment, if I can, my screen will come up. There we go. Um, I need to, I need to get out of, it just came up. And if I need to, all right. I'm now going to introduce James Scott, who goes uh, usually by Jim Scott. And Jim is a longtime associate of both James and Pamela Files. And he will be introducing both of them in that order. So Jim Scott presently serves as director of safety for a helicopter company supervising aviation safety management systems programs for a broad spectrum of helicopter-borne power line construction services. He has 12 years experience in corporate safety management, 
building high voltage power lines and substations, as well as three years experience in corporate safety management, building the Trans-Canada Keystone crude oil pipeline from the Canadian border to Stillwater, Oklahoma. Jim served eight years as a state, Virginia state trooper, and was assigned to security details for presidents of the United States with the Secret Service on three separate occasions. He served 12 years on active duty in the U.S. Marine Corps from 1980 to 1992 as a CH-46E Sea Knight helicopter pilot and battalion air officer with 2,200 accident-free flight hours as a helicopter pilot. Jim deployed to northern Iraq in 1991 for Operation Provide Comfort, to the Persian Gulf in 1987 for Operations Prime Chance and Ernest Will, and to Honduras near the Nicaraguan border in 1984 in support of the CIA Contra operations. He was awarded four air medals as a helicopter aircraft commander for successful operations inside northern Iraq in 91, helping to save the Kurdish people who had been attacked with poison gas by Saddam Hussein. That was VX nerve gas, by the way. Jim's formal military and security education and training includes the Marine Corps Academy, the Citadel, the U.S. Naval Aviation Flight School, U.S. Naval Strike Warfare University, U.S. Marine Corps Amphibious Warfare School, the U.S. Naval Postgraduate School, where I was the senior military affairs journalist for 16 years, and I believe we overlapped there, the Georgia Institute of Technology, and the Virginia State Police Academy. Jim has over 20 years experience in corporate safety and eight years of dynamic law enforcement public safety experience. After discovering James Files in prison and interacting with him, Jim Scott attempted to reopen personally the JFK assassination case while still a Virginia State trooper. But he was told that it was a closed federal case and to drop it by his superiors or he would likely be fired if he pushed the issue further. After retiring as a Virginia State Trooper, Jim has been pursuing the truth ever since that James Files, whom he is about to introduce, was in fact the grassy knoll shooter who fired the fatal headshot that killed JFK on November 22, 1963. So Jim, uh, welcome to the other side of midnight. And if you could introduce James Files. Thank you, Barbara. I appreciate it. I, and thank you for everything you did to help our event in Dallas. It wouldn't have been a success without your efforts and, and your contributions. Thank you. Um, James Files, I, it's interesting. I never thought the day that I graduated from the Citadel in May of 1980 that I would introduce to the world, the man that shot John F. Kennedy, but here we go. Um, I found about his situation uh, in the late 90s, and as you told the story, I don't need to go into all the detail, but I, I attempted to uh, contact James, and I was going to try to go interview him after he gave his uh, confession that came out on the MPI video. I was unsuccessful. Years later, I found out that he'd been released from prison, and I recently bought the a great book that Pamela Ray Files wrote uh, entitled Primary Target JFK, How the CIA Used the Chicago Mob to Kill the President. They have a website that I'm sure we'll uh, say later, so people need to get a pen and a piece of paper so they can order a, an autographed copy of this book. 
but it explains pretty much exactly what happened um, as far as his role as the shooter on the grassy knoll. Um, James and I, I contacted him after I ordered the book and he was kind enough to actually call me. I never dreamed that it would happen, but we struck up a friendship and because we're brothers in arms, I was very interested in his military experience in Laos and his black ops with the CIA. So we, we've talked on the phone for, geez, it seems like a couple of years now uh, at night. And we, we speak almost every day, a couple of times uh, for hours at a time, uh, late at night, we don't have a lot to do, I guess. But uh, anyway, James is a, a, a 28 year veteran of the CIA. He's, he's a hero of mine. He served his country. He did a lot of hard things. The CIA was kind of a rogue organization back then. Uh, he was paid um, at, under a pseudonym, Colonel John Felter. Uh, he worked for the United Fruit Company uh, back when they were running the Banana Wars, which was kind of a CIA front company. And um, he he did all the CIA training that most of their career people did, but he did some of the hardest, toughest jobs that they the normal, uh, like now that would be the ground branch of the GRS guys are asked to do contractors. And uh, the way he puts it is we, we used to call ourselves mercenary. Now they call them contractors. But James has got an incredible history. Most of it's top secret. He is the man that killed John F. Kennedy and fired the shot from the grassy knoll at 12.30 on the 22nd of November, 1963. We were at the fence um, on the 22nd of November last week together. And uh, that was a, uh, a real treasured moment, really, for me. I'm very sorry for the Kennedy family and for everything that this world has endured. I, I am a, a fan of John F. Kennedy. Uh, I was just five years old, and I lived in Florida. Everybody says, you know, you, you know where you were when John F. Kennedy was killed. That's not true for me. I don't have any idea what I was doing when John F. Kennedy was killed. I was just a little kid. But James is a hero in my book. He, he's a patriot. He served this country for a long time, but he also did some bad things, you know, for the mafia and things like that. He spent 32 years of his life in prison. He was saved by the grace of, of Pam's relationship. What a wonderful woman she is and a great writer. She's written three books that everybody should try to buy if you can get find a copy of them. There's one that's hard to find. But uh, James, they want me to start off by asking you a couple questions, and uh, I want Jim, to welcome to the Jim, show. Jim? Yeah. Yeah, we're at the bottom of the hour, uh, and we we really need to take a break, and then when we come back from the break, I'd like to just give some highlights from James Files' bio that you didn't touch on before you introduced him. Okay, go ahead. Okay, so, Kinsia, should we take the break now? Okay, we would have taken it in a minute, but now it's okay, Keith. So you're listening to The Other Side of Midnight. <clears throat> Our show tonight is the 60th year, the 60-year breakthroughs in finally solving the Kennedy assassination. Our guests include Barbara Honiger, Jim Scott, and more. We're going to hear from the shooter on the other side of the break. We shall return. If you're in 
hyperdimensional. One thing you'll find is essential is our club. 19.5. It's a hyperdimensional storage case. A treasure trove of outer space. Our club. 19.5 All the data we've accumulated to find here titled and collated Why don't you just drop on by and give our club a try If you're in the hyperdimensional You'll find our credentials are fine. Club 19.5. The other side of midnight.com. Join Richard C. Hoagland and an array of fascinating guests as we explore real-world topics and events through the lens of hyperdimensional physics. Join Club 19.5 to gain access to hundreds of archived shows. Only $9.95 per month. Listen in each Saturday and Sunday to the most compelling and thoughtful broadcasts heard in over 160 countries around the world. Real research. Real data. Real science. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back to the other side of midnight. This is a historic show one you have not heard before, with totally new data, new insights, and breakthroughs. We were just having a conversation with Jim Scott and Barbara Honiger, and we're about to bring on James File. But so, uh, Jim, before we, before we do, can see, I just want to give people a thumbnail sketch of James File's background, which uh, most of this um, Jim Scott didn't didn't touch on. And I think it's important for people to understand who it is they're about to hear from. So can I go ahead with that? Yes, please. Yeah. Oh, okay. So you're about to hear from, from James Files, the grassy knoll shooter of JFK. Uh, James Files was born in January 1942 in Oak, Oak Man, Alabama. He is military training and education was at Camp Hero in Long Island in New York. He joined the U.S. Army 82nd Airborne Division in January 1959 on his 17th birthday. He served in Operation Mobile White Star in layoffs in July of 1959. He was then recruited into the CIA's mercenary forces in 1960, the next year. He is a 28-year veteran of CIA black operations from 1961 to 1989. He had special ops, tradecraft, and assassination training. He served in CIA Operation Mongoose at the Bay Pigs in 1961. He was one of the very first two recruits 
into the CIA's Operation 40, Worldwide Assassination Group of 40 Assassins, and that was in 1961. He served in Operation 40 in Mexico with none other than George H.W. Bush at the age of 21. He flew with the famous CIA pilot, drugs and gun running pilot, Barry Seal, into Mena, Arkansas during Iran-Contra. He used 33 different CIA passport identities throughout his CIA black ops career and changed his last name to Files from Sutton at the age of 23. He was paid as a CIA mercenary shooter under the name Colonel John Felder, F-E-L-D-E-R, by the CIA front company United Fruit. He was the grassy knoll shooter on November 22, 1963, with the Chicago Mafia as a CIA mercenary at the age of 21, and 26 years of his black operations for military and intelligence still remain classified. So Jim Scott? Please introduce James Files. I don't think I can top that, but uh, Jim, you want to come on and, and uh, go through these questions that we talked about? Yeah, can you uh, hear me now? Yes, sir. Yeah. Loud and clear. Okay. Jim Gordon. All right. So the audience, I'm sure, is awed a little bit that they're going to hear the voice of the grassy knoll shooter, but why don't you explain get to the meat of it and explain exactly what you did the, the day of the assassination from when you got up and left the hotel to when you got back to the hotel. Uh, that morning and when I got up, I called, made a phone call, and I went over to where Johnny Roselli and Charles Nicoletti were staying. I took Johnny Roselli to Fort Worth to the Old South Pancake House, which they've now moved a little bit farther south the business, not the building. We uh, picked up information there, the change of the route, the last minute change to go down Elm Street. Also, met with Jack Ruby at the Old South Pancake House, and he gave uh, John, uh, Jenny Roselli 5A vanilla envelope that carried uh, Secret Service badges and things like that in it. And then I went on back, dropped him off, picked up Chuck, and Charles Nicoletti and I walked to the plaza that morning and talked about things. And he asked me if I would be willing to back him up since Johnny was going to step down as backup shooter. I told him I'd be honored to. So went on back to where he was staying at his motel. I put the car at the Dalsec building and with a 1963 Chevy Impala Super Sport 327, uh, burgundy red was the color of it. Never saw Lee Harvey Oswald that morning at all, that day. I did not see him. Explain how you got selected as the shooter to back up. Uh, General Lansdell was the one that had Johnny Roselli step down and replace me. And I stood behind the picket fence with the fireball, 220 Remington fireball that was made and produced by uh, Wayne Link, and he is actually the father of the uh, fireball. Can you tell us about the mercury bullet? Mercury round, I know most people use bullet. I use round for my military training, but uh, I had George Calora, AKA the Wolfman, uh, make me what I wanted was a kill round, and he did the mercury round where he drew a last one and filled it with 
uh, mercury, covered it with wax, and let it harden and did what he did to make the round. I didn't make the round, he did. And he made me six of those. And I only used one. I had five left. All right, so tell us about, you know, once you're in position in behind the fence area, exactly kind of what went on, you know, just the last hour or so up to, and when you, all the way through the shot. Well, right through there, I went behind, first I was in the railroad yard, I turned my jacket inside out, used the outside, used the liner inside on the outside, there's a red and black plaid liner, to where I looked like a railroad worker, walked amongst the bus cars, a piece of chalk, shredding numbers down so nobody got suspicious of me or figured I was some, you know, anything was wrong. Shortly before the motorcade arrived, I pulled the briefcase with the gun in it, with the fireball in it, out from under the boxcar, walked over behind the fence, took it out, and I removed the scope. And a lot of people say you cannot remove a scope, but they do make a scope for the fireball. I had Wolfman put a lock set there where when the scope went on, once it was set, it would stay set. And then you would take it up there in transportation. Put it back on, crowd, looked like old home weeks, so a lot of people I knew. Everybody from Frank Sturgis to uh, George W. Bush, Jerry Hemmings, you know, like old home week. A lot of the Cubans I knew. You're talking about people that were involved in the Bay of Pigs operation with you. The people that I trained and worked with. And they were at Dealey Plaza. They were at Dealey Plaza, yes. Where was Frank Sturgis? He was up and to my left, oh, maybe... 80, 90 feet away from me. Mm-hmm. And George where was George Bush? Bush? Yeah. He was uh, just almost in back of me by the school book depository. Leaning, right. leaning against the depository. Pardon me? He was leaning against the building. Yes. He was standing straight at that point. He was leaning back against it with one foot on the wall, with his leg kind of been like that was uh, as I was leaving after the assassination. And then about 15 minutes before the assassination, what happened? General Lansdale came by to check with me to make sure that I was on station. He wouldn't know if I had any problems, if I had any second thoughts. I told him no. I was ready to go. And you chose that location yourself. Is that correct? Yes, I did. Okay, tell us tell us what happened um, as the motorcade came onto Elm Street. Well, the motorcade came off Main Street, made a right entry onto Houston, and come up Elm Street and made the left. And as it come down by us, it was rolling slowly, about 10 to 15 miles an hour. People was uh, tapping John uh, JFK's hand. He was rubbing hands with them. And then the shots started ringing out, and I was counting miss 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 not one two three four miss 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 and by the third shot charles nicoletti did not have a headshot from behind it counted so i got ready and took the shot all the way down through there from the time of turning up street i had the crosshairs on john f kennedy never took them off now some people say the car stops it suddenly slowed down but it never come to complete stop because I never stopped fireball and ran on JFK, having been the crossers all the time. And I know the car did not stop, no matter what they say. But anyway, it slowed, it slowed down. 
it slowed down, Dave. It slowed down just before you took the shot. And then, if I understand correctly, you the moment you took the shot, you started putting away your gun, and you weren't watching. So if the car yeah. did slow, if did come to more of a stop, you wouldn't have seen it. It slowed down to about a mile, mile and a half an hour, but I never saw the car stop. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, right after the shooting, well, I was fixing to lose my field of fire. That is when I took my shot. And Charles Nicoletti fired maybe a thousandth of a second before me. His shot started pushing Kennedy's head forward. I was aiming for the uh, right eye. The head went forward. I caught him in the right temple, and the head went backwards. And a lot of uh, skull come out the brain and things. And I did a I did an oil painting for uh, Robert Clayton Buick on his book called Assassination. And I gave uh, John F. Kennedy, I gave him a watermelon head. And people thought it was, I was goofy for doing that. And I painted that one when I was in prison and sent it to him. And I uh, had Spectre and Death in back of him coming for him. But um, when I got through, the, took the shot. I immediately ejected the brass from the chamber, put it in my mouth. And I was biting down on it while I bent over and put the fireball in the briefcase. Closed the green piece, stood it up, because I'm ready to go. As I pulled my jacket off, I held the sleeves, the inside the liner, removed it to the end, back to the inside again. I had the gray poplin jacket on, which matches the pants, which is a gray poplin material, a tiny, shiny silver or gray. And uh, I put my fedora on, picked up the briefcase, and I walked away. And Explain then- where you walked to, and then how the the uh- what what happened at the getaway car and where you went? I walked back to the Dow Tech building. I had left the uh, official business sign on the dash. That way the police wouldn't bother it. Johnny Roselli was in the back seat. Charles Nicoletti was in the right passenger bucket seat. And I started the car. I slid the briefcase up under the, the seat by the seat. And uh, Johnny reached through there as I took a right-hand turn onto Houston. He told he said, Jimmy, he said, here's the brass. And he gave me four brass shells that had been fired by Charles Nicoletti. Okay, and where did you take the uh, Chuck and Johnny? Okay, I took them right. I uh, took them on uh, Houston Street there, a few blocks up, made a left-hand turn, went down a couple blocks, made a right-hand turn, went a few more blocks, and pulled in by the uh, St. Clair gas station. They got out of the car, walked across the parking lot. I do not know what they got into, did not want to know. And I immediately pulled away, and I headed back for Mesquite, Texas. The lamplighter ran where I was staying at. What did you do at the hotel when you got there? I went into the room. I waited and left the guns in the car until nighttime to bring them in to clean them. But I went in, and I heated some wax, took a shower, got the wax off of my uh, hands and wrists and my face. If there was any there, I didn't take no chances. And uh, got out of the shower, come out, dressed, everything. Suddenly, there's a knock on the hotel door, which had me a little bit concerned. I opened the door, and there stood Gary Marlowe, also known as the Raven. And his first words was to me. I asked him, what the hell are you doing here? And he said, I burned a cop. 
and he wanted to know because he was used to always returning his weapons to me after he had used them. Because I would always return the weapons back to Wolfman, which is George Calora. I told him, I said, no, keep it, throw it away, get rid of it. I don't want it. I got enough problems now. Leave. And uh, he left at that point and never came in my room. Well, I think it's important to tell the audience what who the policeman was that he shot. The, the policeman was J.D. Tippett. He was the only police officer shot that day in Dallas. Explain to Jimmy the relationship between uh, the Raven, uh, Gary Marlowe, and J.D. Tippett and why he shot him. J.D. Tippett served with uh, John C. Grady, who was a historian, historian for the 82nd Airborne who come to visit me a few times at Joliet and interviewed me. We talked everything. And he found part of my military record at the archives in St. Louis. And then a few weeks later, we went back to get more information. Everything was gone and uh, said no further information available. The J.D. Tippett and Gary Marlowe. Yeah, I, know, I know that. I, I know that. But I'm bringing up who J.D. Tippett was. And he served with John C. Grady in World War II. And he was with intelligence. From the intelligence, he uh, became a Dallas police officer when he got out of the Army. And then he was moved down to, uh, he had been uh, referred to us to work with us on the Bay of Pigs. And him and Gary Marlowe at that time became pretty good friends. They went out, had a few drinks together, ate dinner together and things. But Sam Giancana was in the order. Gary Marlowe had him come to town to do any cleanup work, wet work, as you wish to call it, in case it was needed. Gary Marlowe had the orders not to let anybody know that he was in Dallas that day. So when J.D. Tibbet pulled over and parked and got out of his car, he never drew out his gun. Gary Marlowe pulled his and shot him and killed him at that point because J.D. Tibbet was a tie back to him. Marlowe was a tie to me, so was Oswald, and uh, that would have brought down a lot of things going back to the Chicago mob. The CIA okay. used the Chicago mob for one reason. There'd be no tiebacks to the agency, and right. the Chicago mob could take the fall. Explain why, what happened right there at that part of it. Explain what Gary's mission was, why he was on the street over there where he bumped into J.D. Tibbet. I told Chuck that morning about Oswald. Oswald said he would tell Sam and take care of it. He told Sam Marlowe's job, the Raven, was to go get Oswald. He was sent to his place. He parked a little ways from his house so nobody would see his car. And he went there, but he had missed Oswald. And he was leaving when he ran into J.D. Tippett, his friend. The woman that saw the accident saw some uh, woman testified that the man that killed uh, J.D. Tiffin had wavy, long wavy hair, like almost like Elvis, real black, and that was the one that shot him. Lee Oswald had thin brown hair. That's in the uh, one commission's records. Warren Commission. That's yeah. exactly why they called him the Raven, right? Because he had long they black. Yeah. That's because his hair was so black and the sunlight had turned almost blue. But be specific. What was what was Marlowe supposed to do with Oswald? He was going to kill Oswald. That's what he was sent there for. Because Oswald was a tie back to me. I was a tie back to Chuck. 
and we wanted to cut the wire somewhere, the Raven went to kill Oswald. That would close the close out loose loose ends. It would tie me back. It would come back to me. See, okay. we're we're now speaking about Oswald. James, could you, could you let us know what happened? What you and Oswald did in the five consecutive days leading up to the assassination? When I got there and I checked in at the Mesquite Hotel, which was the lamplighter in, <clears throat> excuse me, the lamplighter in there in Mesquite. Somebody knocked on the door, and I answered the door, and uh, I seen uh, Oswald there and said, yeah, what's going on? And he said, the boss told me to come show you around. And he was referring to David Adley Phillips at that point, because we both had the same controller at that time. And uh, so Lee and Mason spent five days together riding around, and they had a little notebook with me, and I was marking down on that one, dead-end streets, one-way streets, where there was at, railroad crossings, what time the trains crossed and everything. Because I was originally used to go down uh, to Dallas as, not as a shooter, but as the driver and a weapons bearer. And I took the weapons with us, with me to Dallas. So did he you scout out Dealey Plaza with Oswald? Yes. Can I you spent have... five days with Oswald. Mm-hmm. And who was driving? His job who at was... the bookstore was uh, the cover story. And who was the driver, Oswald or you, during those five days? I did the driving, but Oswald could drive because he drove a truck and met me different times at Baton Rouge, Louisiana, sometimes at Clinton, Louisiana, because I ran guns down there. I owned the coffee cup in Melville's Park, and I ran some of the things out of their weapons and things for the White Hand, for Alpha, and, you know, the group. Did the David Atlee Phillips ever, before the assassination day, did he ever mm-hmm. tap Oswald to be a shooter, and then Oswald changed his mind? Or what not happened? that I know of. No, he did not. So Oswald was never tapped by David Atlee Phillips to be a shooter? Not to my knowledge. He introduced me to Lee Harvey Oswald, but he never had us both together at the same time. He it's only so- saw one agent at a time, one field operative. So the, because so everything the was time- compartmentalized. So the only time you were with Oswald was beginning five days before? No, I knew him six months prior to that. That's when I was running the guns to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and to uh, Clinton, Louisiana. But you were physically. I wouldn't get Oswald there. He would drive a pickup truck there, and then we would unload the cases of guns into the pickup truck and take them to New Orleans to load them on a freighter going. We shipped the guns to uh, Papa Doc in Haiti at that time. Mm -hmm. And after Papa Doc was gone, we continued, continued to ship guns to Baby Doc in Haiti. Okay. Um, Jim, other question? I have a question. Yeah. This is Kinthea, and I have a question. Good. I think it's a question. Hello, James. I think it's a question that a lot of the audience Americans are asking. And I'm wondering, I understand that you were following orders, if you will. But I wonder... What was the impact for you, if there was any, to take a life of someone that was so beloved, not only from this country, but from his family? And Oswald, who you were driving around with to know that he was going to be wiped out. You could be wiped out the same. 
I don't understand. It, Kennedy wasn't just a clay duck. He was a real live person with blood coursing through his veins. And I just want to understand how is it that we can be so, uh, I don't know, so programmed by a duty that we can overlook the value of life. I was trained to take orders. I had no remorse for killing JFK. I did feel bad about his children growing up without a father. But JFK was not good for this country. Uh Not in my decision. Other people made the decision. I was a tool. He was was bred from, from his birth to kill. So by the time he was 21, he had already had what, 17 primary targets in, in your crosshairs? No, that's before I was 18. My birthday is January 24th, 1942. Operation Mobile White Star, CIA project operation, which at the time I did not know was CIA. I served under Colonel Fletcher Prouty. I respected the man a lot. They interviewed him to make sure I was one of his men before he died. He confessed on his deathbed that I was one of his men. And... Uh, did you ever question the rightness of these orders? Did no. it ever cross your mind or you just went along with it? I was a soldier. I was in the 82nd Airborne. I followed orders. I did what I was ordered to carry out. I was a soldier for the mob and I was a soldier for the CIA. Okay. I look back and I've asked God to forgive me for my sins, but, you know, that's another story, but. Well, I don't I know if it's another orders. story. I did every operation they gave me. I did over 100 FERC uh, operations. It's classified. I signed over 100 NDAs, signed a secrecy pact. I didn't want to get violated by talking about those jobs and be charged by the OSA which is the Official Secrecy Act, and I've never looked back. I know my wife has tried to get me to feel remorse, but it's hard to feel remorse for something that you thought was right. Uh-huh. And when they gave me the orders, and I took the job, and I was working strictly for the C, uh, for the Mafia when I went to Dallas. The CA was kept out of it. I was paid by United Fruit. Next of all, I went to the bank in Florida, the money went under the name of Colonel John Felder. The money was transferred from there to the bank in Broadview, Illinois, under the name Files, so that my family could draw the funds from the bank and live. So did you feel that it was your highest calling to serve the mafia? No, I, did. I guess uh, I know the mafia is supposed to come first, La Costa, Nostra, and that. But whoever I was working for or what I found, when I was asked to do a job, I did the job. I didn't think about what it was to me. It was another day at the office. Wow. Yeah, James. And so now, now, here you are. Yes. I'd like to uh, ask James a question in the last two minutes or so before the break. And that is, James, if you could let the audience know about your debriefing uh, by David Atkins. I took my debriefing in Chicago at 63rd and Lawler. At the uh, Midway Airport in Chicago. With David Atlee That Phillips. is the first time I had let anyone know that I had used a Mercury round when I shot Kennedy. 
when I told David Alley Phillips, my controller, when I told him that, wasn't too pleased about it. But a couple of weeks later, maybe three weeks, whatever it was, JFK's brain went missing. And uh, the reason why there's a lot of mercury in with it, mercury is splattered all over the limb of the car. What I understand, Jackie's clothes, JFK's clothes, watched some other things. But uh, I gave my debriefing, got my debriefing at 63rd and Lawler at the Midway Airport, where we had an hangar, a hangar for the CIA. We kept our planes, so we'd always have one on hand to use for whatever was needed. Right, and that was about, what, 10 days after the assassination? 10 days after the assassination. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's important for the audience to to get that David Atlee Phillips, who was extremely high-ranking in the CIA, was the controller for both Oswald and for James Files, and yes, debriefed James Files. So this I was the every CIA. Day and I called it. I call it dispatch messenger board in Langley, Virginia. No matter where David Phillips was at, I was. I would give them the code name, the code number. They would patch it in right away. And I got David Phillips on the phone, and he knew it was me because they told him the code number that somebody wanted to talk to him. And those phones were uh, pretty safe. They were scrambled. Anyway, he would tell me, hey, it's a nice day. Take the day off. You know, go relax. Otherwise, he would say, go to go to the airport. There's a ticket waiting for you. Go to Dell Airlines or whatever lines it may be. And I'd go there and pick up my ticket. I would get on the plane. I would receive a folder on the plane that gave me the target or whatever the operation was going to be, pictures, information, everything. I took that, landed, got rid of it. When I say got rid of it, I burned it. Burned it and flushed the ashes down the toilet. And, James, uh, we need to hold it there. We're at a hard break. You're listening okay. to the other side of Midnight. The show is called The 60-Year Breakthroughs in Finally Solving the Kennedy Assassination. Our guests are Barbara Honiger, Jim Scott, and we are currently talking with James Fields, the shooter of JFK. We shall return after the break. Sometime in the day, and 
And we are in conversation with James File, the actual shooter on the grassy knoll. And James, you were just recounting to us the breakdown of what happened after you took that fatal shot. I invite you to continue with what you were de- depicting there. Well, the fatal shot when I took that, then I, like I said, reversed my jacket, picked up the briefcase. It all happened less than 30 seconds. I was walking away. I was about eight to 10 feet away from the end of the fence. As I rounded the fence, people came running by me, passing to the people. They thought nothing about it. it. Looked like a business fan going to lunch. They went back there and then they ran to the railroad yards and everybody was looking around. Most of the answers are in my book where they've asked the same question many times over. And I've asked the people, I should say, I'm a panelist, emailed them and said, if they wanted to ask a question, they could. And if they wanted their name in the book, give us permission, which they did, and they gave permission. And there's a lot of questions in the book in that part. Yeah, I think this is a good time to um, introduce Pamela Ray Files, your incredible yes. partner and the author of all three books on your career as a mafia and CIA mercenary shooter. Um, and Pamela Ray Files is on the program. You've, you've heard her talking to James there a few times. So briefly about Pamela's background, and then I'd like, Pamela, for you to tell the amazing story as to how you got connected with James, the amazing story of how you got together, what happened to James to... To, to bring him to tell the truth publicly, which is amazing. I'm convinced that if it weren't for you, this would not be happening. And um, the three books that you have published. So just briefly, your background. Pamela Ray Files uh, was born and raised in Oregon and Hawaii. Um, she is the author of all three books 
on her husband James Files' career as a U.S. military and CIA mercenary shooter. Um, the three books on James Files' career are the first one is To Kill a Country on the Coup d'etat in Chile. The second one is called Interview with History, the JFK Assassination, obviously on the JFK Assassination. And the latest book, which I highly recommend, I recommend all three of them, but the, um, the latest book is titled Primary Target JFK, How the CIA Used the Chicago Mob to Kill the President. And all three of these books and much else is available on James and Pamela Files' website. And I'm going to give that now and many times during this show because you can get signed copies of all three books, including especially Primary Target, JFK, which is available both in hard copy and in paperback. I have both. And James not only signs and dates the book on the title page, but he also puts his thumbprint right by his signature. Um, so their website is jfkmurder, jamesfiles.weebly, that's W-E-B-L-Y dot com. Again, that's J-F-K-M-U-R-D-E-R, J-A-M-E-S-F-I-L-E-S dot Weebly, W-E-E-B-L-Y dot com. And uh, you should go to that website and order those books. Um, so, Pamela, um, it would be wonderful if you could come on and tell us the amazing story of how you met James Files and how you came to be the author of these three amazing books. Okay, wow, that's a big story, but I'm going to try and give you the Reader's Digest version because <laughs> um, it's a big, long story. Um, back in 1997, I was in the um, church library over there in uh, Kihei, Hawaii. That's where I lived at the time. And um, long story, but I, I'd been trying to get somebody at church to talk to me about the book of Revelation and end times. And just I knew we were living in the end times that I knew at church, we weren't really being taught about it. So I went in there just to see what I could find for myself and ended up finding a book called High Treason, The Assassination of John F. Kennedy, What Really Happened. And I thought that was really strange because, you know, has nothing to do with end times, I thought. So anyway, took the book home, read it, was pretty upset that basically, um, if anybody's familiar with the book, uh, that a coup d'etat happened and our country was overthrown from from within. Uh, they shot their way into power and they're still in power. And it was back when um, Clinton and Bush were trading turns on being president and running the country down. Anyway, um, that was in 1997. In uh, 1998, I found in a blockbuster confession of an assassin and I found that video, that was the first um, confession of assassin video that James Files taped when he was at Stateville in 1994, when Joe West had um, contacted him. And Joe West was a private investigator <clears throat> looking into the Kennedy assassination. He wanted to get JFK's body exhumed to prove uh, what direction the shots were fired from, to prove a conspiracy. Anyway, long story. Uh, I saw that confession of assassin video, and at the end, the interviewer asked James Files, uh, James Files, you've been around death, violence, murder, and killing your whole life. Do you believe in God? 
and he kind of looked down. He said, I guess so. I guess I believe in God. Found myself praying to him on several occasions. And so when I was listening to that, I was like, well, he he's really close. I mean, he's he's been tortured by the FBI, you know, almost killed in war and and the mob stuff, you know, he, he's obviously alive for a reason. He's got an important part of history to tell. And so I just was praying and asking God if I should write him and encourage him about being a Christian, you know, and try to help him understand what that is, you know, that I guess so part. And so I wrote him the letter in February of 1999 just to say, hey, thanks for telling the American people the truth and you need a friend to encourage you about God. I mean, I'd be, I'd like to be your friend in that way and understand who he is. Name's Jesus Christ. And so, um, he wrote me back and I was really surprised. And so that started, um, our journey of just communicating with each other. But in, um, so February 99 is when I wrote that letter. And then in July of 99, Hey, Jimmy, why don't you tell them what happened in July of 1999 in Stateville? No, you go ahead and tell them right there. Go right on. Well, I'm Jim just saying, right he, he he had a visit from the Lord, and, you know, it's it kind of sounds more credible when it comes from you. So you, why don't you tell them the story? I woke one morning, and it's probably around 2.33 a.m., and stranger was in my cell, and it turned out it was Jesus himself. And I asked Jesus why he was there, and he told me that the Father sent him there to tell me that I was an unbeliever, and the only way to get to the Father was through Jesus Christ himself. So we talked about a few things there and there forth, and I watched as Jesus walked right through the bars and left. The next morning, I tried to tell everybody Jesus was there. I loved everybody, and they kept telling me it was a dream, and I kept telling them that it was real. And a couple of months later, Jesus was back again. And I asked Jesus why he had come again. So he come not once, but twice. And he come because he said the Father told him to tell me to put my life in order that he would soon call me home. So Pamela and I was talking about that the next day over the phone. And then we discovered he was talking about, uh, I think it was Matthew 24, in the Bible about the earth giving birth pains, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I believed in God before because I found myself praying to him enough times when I had a small team and we would be surrounded in Vietnam and we fought our way out. The option of surrender or giving up never occurred. It was always, we're going to fight our way out. And the, I believe in God. And each now each time when I pray at night, I thank God for the time he's granted family and me together. And I thank God for each day he's extended my life to live longer. Okay. So, yeah. So fast forward to um, September of 2000, and that's the first time I came to Stateville to visit James Files from Hawaii. Never been to a, a prison, let alone a maximum security prison in Illinois, flying from, you know, Maui, Hawaii. And um, so... When I get there in the visiting room, I'm kind of overwhelmed by the whole process. And then he 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 slips down on the floor off these crappy seats they have in there for tables and chairs. 
and I thought he had dropped something. I go, are you okay? What, did you drop something? He goes, no. He's looking into my eyes and holding my hand. And he said, if I ever get out of prison, will you marry me? And I'm like, what? You're asking me to marry you in a prison video room like this? Really? <laughs> anyway, um, no, knowing he had no chance of ever getting out, I said, yes. And, <laughs> just kidding. Anyway, um, he, he said, you know, okay. So he got back up in the chair. And then he was still holding my hand and looking in my eyes. And he says, well, you're the only person I trust to get this story out. And you have a way with words. You know, by the way, I would talk to him in letters and talk to him on the phone. He says, you just have a way with words. And I, I trust only you to get this story out to the people because I know your heart's in the right place. And you just want the people to have the truth. And everybody else that's come in here, oh, my gosh, led me down the golden path and shot me in the back while, you know, not even halfway down. So anyway, that's how it started with To Kill a Country. And he said he was working on that book about the overthrow of Chile, but I could make it whatever I want. I said, well, it's an appropriate title for, you know, what happened to America in 1963 uh, to kill our country with assassination of John F. Kennedy. So that's part one of To Kill a Country. And then part two was the um, Southeast Asia overthrowing Chile, CIA drug running, and so much more. And then the third part is the um, New World Order conspiracy, uh, Illuminati conspiracy for the New World Order. So that was a mouthful and had some problems at the publisher. Long story, don't want to hear. Then while he was still in prison, I ended up getting another book out that basically had the information more about the JFK assassination and surrounding events. Um, that was called Interview with History, the JFK assassination. And then once he got out of prison on uh, 2016, and then uh, I, I finally came over to Illinois because he couldn't come to Hawaii in 2017. Um, I said, Jimmy, we need to get this book out and do it, do it the right way and get more information, get Joe West information and supporting documents in the back. And long story later, that's how the primary target book came out. And like I said, the other two were written when he was in prison, everything going in and out in triplicate, you know, CIA, him telling me, oh, the people back east. They know we're writing a book and it's making them nervous. This is when George Bush Sr. is still alive. And I'm like, whatever. I don't have the fear of man. I have the fear of God. So, yeah, it's been a long journey of trying to get this information to the public. And I'm glad that in 2023, on the 60th anniversary, with the help of Jim Scott and Barbara Honiger, we were able to have a conference right in Dallas. And they say that they're the city of hate. I didn't name them that, but I came to the realization that Dallas is the city of hating the truth. They love their lie up on the sixth floor museum. They love just, con just controlling the narrative. And I don't think Dallas is ever going to have a breakthrough um, as long as they have that sixth floor museum going and they're proud of it. So that's yep. kind of by the way pamela one of the most interesting things to me about this amazing dallas event that jim scott uh hosted and and i helped him co-host uh for you and jim um one mm -hmm. of the most amazing things to me about it is that there were two as there are every anniversary and this was the 60th jfk assassination anniversary as every single year for decades on end um, mm -hmm. There has been multiple JFK assassination researchers and authors conferences. I've spoken oh, yeah. four or five times at them. And 
what's fascinating to me is that most of these researchers at these conferences, um, they don't want to know this. Even the JFK truth community doesn't want to know this. And that's what really shocked me. Well, it's it's the um, golden egg that they continually uh, put out there for people that it, once this is solved, what are they going to do? <laughs> exactly. What, why, why hold any more conferences? Yeah. How about we move on to 9-11 and what's going on right now? How about we just move on and realize we've been lied to and we got to catch up and, and hurry up before the country's gone? Yeah, exactly. And uh, for four or five years running before COVID and I was in person and then during COVID for two years, it was digital online. And then this last, this last time it was in person, I have um, mm-hmm. been invited to give presentations on the parallels between the deep state uh, events of the JFK assassination in 9-11 and the cover-ups. And so that's that's what I have done at these JFK conferences. Now I will say mm-hmm. that our at our Dallas event on this just past November twenty first, the room was almost packed full. Mm-hmm. So there were a lot of people there who heard the truth, and we were able to um, we were able to get the article thanks to Robert Morningstar, whom we're going to bring on uh, probably next. Um, Thanks to Robert Morningstar, the uh, truth about what uh, James Files has to tell the world was actually published in the London Sunday Times, of all places, by the D.C. correspondent, the top D.C. correspondent in Washington, D.C. of the London Times. So, you know, this, this really was a breakthrough event. And if you could clarify both you and James, it's my understanding that the November 21st event in Dallas where you spoke and also Gordon Ferry spoke, one of James's longtime uh, former Marine Corps shooter associates. Um, it's my understanding that that was the first and only public event that James has actually spoken at uh, in his since he got out of prison. Is that correct? As far as I know, yes. That, that's the, the only event you've ever spoken at? Yes, the yes. only one. The only one. Judith Mary Baker, where she said I talked to her. I have never spoken to that lady in my life. Oh, Judith Mary Baker, yeah. Well, I will have to I will have to say that because Lee Harvey Oswald uh, drove with you uh, to scout out everything around Dallas and on Dealey Plaza in the five consecutive days leading up to the assassination. Uh, he is not completely innocent. He was a co-conspirator with you. And Judith Mary Baker denies that. And I I now realize that I, I it's hard for me to believe that Judith Mary Baker doesn't know the truth. Because she claims to have been in constant communication with Lee Harvey Oswald during that very period of time leading up to the assassination. So I just think that I don't think she's lied, but I don't think she's telling the whole truth anywhere close. Yeah, the word embellish comes to my mind, that she just notes a little bit, and then she embellishes it with all sorts of facts that she's come across and knows about. That's yeah. what it seems like to me, just, you yeah. know, not trying to talk mean or anything, but 
it's just it, it, she's caused a lot of problems for us that she didn't have to and tried to deny that you know Jimmy was who he says he is and you know casting doubt on it and when there's no need for that I, I did nothing but try to promote uh, what she was trying to tell with her cancer research story and meeting Oswald I talked to her once on the phone for quite a long time but James Files has never talked to her and uh-huh. Anyway, we don't want to spend any more time talking about it. No, I, I understand. Um, I'd like to bring in now Robert Morningstar. Robert, can you hear us? Robert? Yes, I can. Oh, great. I'm sure, you're brimming, I'm sure you're brimming with comments and questions for James and Pamela. So why don't you go ahead? Uh, well, yeah, I'd like to make a couple of comments. Um, in... Um, in support of Pamela's assertion that it's not the people of Dallas, but the city fathers and the business community, they draw a lot of money from these conferences. And I've always thought that the last time I was there was 1998. And I always thought of having a conference in New York. And the conference would be called The Truth Cannot Be Told in Texas. <laughs> I like that. Because the ghost of LBJ still looms large over yeah. Oh, yeah. The, the second thing I would like to say is that Dallas is not the city of hate. The people of Dallas poured forth their love for President John F. Kennedy. And in fact, the last words that John F. Kennedy heard were from Nellie Connolly, who turned around and said to him, Mr. President, you can't say that Dallas doesn't love you anymore. And then the shots rang out. And the poor people of Dallas had also took the hit. The people of Dallas have been despised and ostracized. And especially in the days, weeks, and months after the assassination, the people of Dallas traveling around the United States were castigated unjustly. If you look at the videos now or the film of the films of President Kennedy's motorcade from Love Field to Dealey Plaza. There were throngs of people. I estimate a million people came out from all parts of Texas to to greet the president. And there was nothing in those crowds. Imagine he went all the way from the airport right to Dealey Plaza, several, huge number of miles, no incidents. And the people were refusing nothing but love, admiration, excitement at his presence. So this crime was not committed by the people of Dallas. This no, crime was Robert, committed. I, I, I didn't by, want to sound like I believed that the people of Dallas were saying that, you know, it's they hated John F. Kennedy. It's in 2023, uh, the Dallas Morning News and the Texas CBS Morning News and all those, they're, they're trying to cover up the, the whole image of, you know, Dallas, the city of hate. I mean, oh, they're I the ones that bring it up. I'm not criticizing. I'd like to chime in. This is Tana Willis, and I'd like to chime in as a, a person that was raised in Dallas. Sure, in go since, the, since the 1850s, my family's been in Dallas County in the city of Dallas. Uh, we can't fall prey to the media narrative without knowing the people who really exist and live in the city of Dallas and Dallas County. 
and it is not a city of hate as it was in night perceived in 1963. And, and the only the, reason I brought that up was because I wanted to make the point that they hate the truth, not the people that were there in 1963 that they hated John F. Kennedy. No, the people in 2023 that run the city still hate the truth. They don't I, want I, this I, much I, truth coming out. That's the I, only I thing disagree I when we when we lump and they're the ones that brought it up. I I, you know? I respectfully disagree when we lump everybody in a, a multi-million person city that they all hate the truth when that is that is only what you're perceiving from what's pushed out through the media. I agree. It's actually the media. The media made up that term "city of hate," and they pushed it hard and strong for years. But I think it's time to uh, take a different tack. Yeah, it's time to heal. Yeah, well, I I would like to ask uh, James. James, you said to me a while ago that you think that Lee Harvey Oswald got away, that somehow he was so valuable that the CIA figured out a way of giving him an exit. I wonder if if you still hold to that. You mean that he wasn't well, I still? still. Hold to it, but the thing is, I don't really want to wish to discuss that part of the uh, GFK assassination anymore. Okay. And I've never changed my story, and I'm going to tell you, I still stand on what I believe. But yeah. and that's not to uh, not to disturb the people with it. Yeah. I, I, when it comes to my turn, I can answer that since my father told me Lee was on his team. So we'll discuss that here in a little bit. Why don't you go ahead, Shauna? Right, go ahead. <laughs> it's, it's it's not my time. It's panelist time. <laughs> okay, all right. Yeah, and, I, and you should be properly introduced. So go right, ahead, right, Pamela. Right. If there's oh, uh, Robert, you were asking questions. Well, uh, I'll ask the rest of the questions of James privately. Um, I, I basically got the answer, same answer that I got before, and uh, he doesn't want to go into details of that. Uh, could, could I clarify what you understand, what James told you before? I, I presume by let, letting Oswald go, the proposal is, is that Oswald was not killed. Is that correct? Yes, that's, that's the inference I would draw from that. And, and is I, the inference you would draw from that also then that a double was shot and killed or that no one was shot and killed? Yes, a double was shot and killed and doubles are the doppelganger. That's a term for doubles. And uh, it seems that they're all over the place. And so the discrepancies in the stories, you know, about Oswald, uh, mm-hmm. how many Oswalds were running around uh, Dallas one Oswald didn't drive, and the other Oswald drove trucks. Uh, as a matter of fact, when Oswald was in Russia, J. Edgar Hoover found out that someone named Lee Harvey Oswald was renting trucks and running guns uh, across the south from New Orleans to Florida, and part of the supply line for arms to the anti-Castro Cubans. Also involved in this uh, arms trade was Jack Ruby. And a few years ago, I found out how they were doing it. Weapons were being stolen from Fort Hood, Texas and smuggled out. 
they were being handed over to this network, which included Jack Ruby and apparently someone who was going about with the name of Lee Harvey Oswald while so-called real Oswald was in Russia. And this was, this was in 1959 and 60 that J. Edgar Hoover discovered this. 15 so, seconds. Okay, so the guy who went to Russia was one guy, and I think the guy who came back from Russia was another guy because his brother makes comments in his book, Lee, Biography of an Assassin. He gives a lot of double messages, and perhaps we'll talk about that later. Okay, so I think we're ready for the break. And after the break, I'll introduce Shauna Gale uh, Willis. Great. The other side of midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and nonlinearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. The other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Search the archives. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Membership costs $9.95 a month. 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back to the other side of midnight. We were just having a conversation with Robert Morningstar, and the show is called The 60-Year Breakthroughs in Finally Solving the Kennedy Assassination. This is Kinthea co-hosting with Barbara Honiger. Robert, would you like to continue? Or Barbara? Yeah, I was going to introduce uh, Shauna Gale Willis. Shall I go ahead, Robert? Do you have other questions or comments? Uh, no, I thought I'd wait. I'd rather hear from Chana. Chana first? Okay. Uh, yes. it, it's, it, it's actually a fun name to pronounce since I was a little child. It's yes. Chana. Yes. It rhymes with like Charlie Chan, a hard C-H. Oh, Some people try to say yes. it's just. And uh, so in first grade, spelling Chana's fine hour is quite the ordeal. I didn't go to recess as quickly as the other kids. Okay. But, uh, That's Chana. And the, and, and the last name, my father's last name is like Spain, the country Spain, 
an hour, like on a clock, Spain hour. Oh, okay. Very good. And, and it originates from Switzerland back to uh, 1044 is how far back we can trace our lineage, about about 26 generations. Which oh, I that's very interesting well, because my ancestors, is it Chana? Chana. Like Chana. Charlie Chan. No oh, Chan in it. Yeah, yeah no okay. I in it. It's just Chana. Okay, Chana. Um, but I have a question before you go on, Barbara. Jenna, uh-huh. I see your last name is Willis. Do you have any, any relationship by marriage or other with Philip Willis, who was in the Ely Plaza taking pictures? No relationship at all. My husband is David Tex Willis, and okay. he was in the military. And my dad's first middle name, he went by Phil. His middle name is Philman. So as a child, he grew up as Phil. So, you know, the family called him either Phil or Freddie. Uh, and in the military, his name was so long. Sometimes they they would just slap Spain on his chest instead of Spain hour. So, uh, <laughs> thank you. If you if you say hey you, I'll answer to it. But uh, I'll go ahead and let Barbara continue with the introduction. Okay. Well, I just wanted to uh, mention, seeing as you said your ancestors were from Switzerland, so are mine, going back to at least the 1300s that we've documented. Mm-hmm. And I have gone to Switzerland to all of the little villages in the Honegger Valley. <laughs> so we're we're related, I'm sure. Probably cousins. Uh-huh. Long yeah. lost. Yeah. yeah. Okay, well you're you're hearing um let's see, Chan Chana. You're hearing Chana Gail uh Willis and she is the daughter of uh now uh the late Navy Master Chief um Phil Spain Hour. Uh, who was with the Office of Naval Intelligence and the CIA before, during, and after World War II. Uh, see, it's, no, I'm going to get this wrong. It's Ch- Ch- Chan, Chana. Chana. Actually, Chana. he was U.S. Navy Master Chief, photo intelligence, and oh, he was yeah, involved in Dallas Navy, before, during, and after. Navy Master Chief, yes. So um, Chana Gill um, Willis lived in Texas. She was born on the Jacksonville, Florida Naval Base during the height of the Cold War. She is a literary agent, a historian, a writer, and a speaker, a former executive editor of the publications The Winsboro News, editor and publisher of the publication The White Right Rose and the McKinney Living Magazine in Texas. She is a forensic photographer following in her father's footsteps and a business consultant. So you're going to hear the amazing story of Chan Chanis. Spain Hour, who is United States Master Chief, as I said, uh, Photo Intelligence, Office of Naval Intelligence, CIA, FBI, Dallas Police Department, Crime Scene Photographer, Dallas Fire Department. Chief of Photography, Photo Chief. Over the course of several decades, her father grew up in the backland prairies of the cotton fields in Dallas County to making camera lenses, believe it or not, for the space satellite, the U.S. space satellite, and equipped the United States' U-2 spy planes with aerial photo equipment that he designed. He was with Task Force 43 and another task force called VAP-62, she might tell you about. He was with Admiral Byrd's um, Operation 
uh, deep freeze, uh, one in Antarctica. He was Admiral Byrd's uh, photographer for that uh, historic mission. And most importantly, uh, the, her father um, lived to 91 years, spanning a life serving in World War II at the same time as JFK in 1944. In fact, they knew each other and served together in the Pacific to capturing through his own camera lens the actual assassination of JFK at Dealey Plaza. Jaina Willis, as a teenager in 1976 to 1978, assisted her father in his photography lab at Dallas City Hall. From him, she learned how to develop film, make new negatives from spliced originals, and process some of the evidence duplications for the House Select Committee on Assassinations that reopened the investigation of the JFK assassination. In Jack Roth's book titled Killing Kennedy, Chapter 11 features Shannon's story of discovering and talking at length with her father and documenting about his involvement in filming the Dallas assassination. The author of the book said, quote, it was like peeling away layers of an onion to experience the discovery of her own father's intelligence work through the eyes of a child over the course of her entire lifetime. So Shona Willis, tell us your amazing story. And if you could start, if you would, to go to the center of the bullseye of this program and let us know what your understanding is from the documents and what your father actually told you in person over many years of his involvement in Dallas uh, recording the assassination for the Office of Naval Intelligence and the CIA. Certainly. And um, it, it's still at points in time difficult for me to do because there have been so many uh, people before me invested in uh, great loss, and I and I can't go without recognition because sometimes I get survivor's guilt that they lost their dad or their parent, and I got to keep mine for a lifetime, and I'll explain why he was not killed or suicided in a little bit. But I, my heart goes out to Carolyn Kennedy and the Kennedy family, Bobby Kennedy, uh, Jack Whitworth, Chris Fulton, St. John Hunt. Rose Charmé's family, Michael Mercedes, Ricky White, and Roscoe Lott family, and Abraham Bolden, and all the others who've had tremendous loss. Um, I grew up not researching this. Uh, I've not poured 60 years into this like so many people have in the United States and Dallas and around the world. I've not been into statistics, logistics, ballistics. I grew up listening to an old veteran's war stories. And he would tell them so many times, people would get to where they weren't listening. And as I got older, I would start asking questions and taking notes because I, I loved journaling and writing from the time I was 11 years old. And we'd go into dad's closet and find these pictures in this little metal box. And I'd ask him what they were and the stories behind them. And it all started with my grandmother's box of letters home. Apparently, dad sent a lot of stuff home. And... I'm just now finding out that most people that worked at the level dad did, uh, intelligence, they weren't supposed to keep things. They weren't supposed to keep documentation and things like that, but dad did. And it started out with these four or 500 letters home during World War II. 
and they're all postmarked. They're all dated. He always put the ship he was on and and stories, and, in, and including snatching from the radio man on August 15th, 1945, the telegram that announced that Japan had just surrendered on the USS Viso. And, and I'm like, this is really cool stuff, you know, because I liked history. It got me to love history. And then in 77, when uh, we were in the photo lab at Dallas City Hall, he was showing us how to make new negatives out of pictures that you could splice up and cut out and make a new negative on the enlarger and make a new print, and it looked like the original one. And I thought that was pretty cool. And then he, and then he was processing this set of police archives, and it was before they were released to the University of North Texas and digitized in the 90s. This is 77. I didn't even know what the House Select Committee on Assassination was. I was not. I was taught not to look in this. And we made a couple of things. If you can look at the slides, um, uh, you can see on the first one, when I found out what was really going on, I sent the information over to, after Dad died, to a guy named Ralph Thomas. Uh, Jonathan? Yes, yes, ma'am. Um, before you go on, I think we should ask the audience uh, and the other guests to go to the Other Side of Midnight show page and scroll down to your items, because I believe that's what you meant by your first slide. Is yes, ma'am. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, um, uh, Kinthea, could you remind people how to get to Shana's slides? All righty. So... If you're listening tonight on December 2nd in the nav bar is a link to the show. But if you're not, you'll go to the show catalog and you'll look for the show dated December 2nd called The 60-Year Breakthrough in Finally Solving the Kennedy Assassination. And right under the banner, just shortly under it is a thing where we have what's called fast links. It says guest page and then fast links to items and fast links to bios. You can navigate throughout the page. There are several of these scattered throughout the page, and it will take you quickly to the items. So in the fast links to items, you click on Chana's items, and there you'll be. All right. Get away, Chana. So so her number one is just below her father's photograph. And go ahead. uh, I think people can bring up your item number one. It's numbered number one. Right, and, and I'm going to give folks an outline real quick. What I'm building up to is the night he told me what happened in Dallas and that Lee was on his team and Lee handled a gun that day and never fired a gun that day. Lee Harvey and Oswald, you're referring Lee Harvey Oswald. And so when people say, is he guilty or innocent? Well, he's innocent of not shooting the president, but he was guilty, as my father was, in being complicit and being involved because... Lee was also Naval Intelligence and New Photography, as well as, as Wasco White, and I'll get into that canister in a little bit. Cause, but uh, I took the basic information I have, thinking my dad just did static photography, and then I, I started looking at these trunks and trunks of data and letters and awards and documentation, and because he did photographs, he saved lots of photographs. And some of them were marked U.S. Navy for release, and some of them were marked classified. So when Dad died at 91, 
after it took moving a mountain with a congressman to go physically back to Congress in D.C. to get someone to come down and give my dad his last debriefing so he could die in peace. I parked it away for a couple of years, and then I spoke in 2016 and said the right words so someone would come down and debrief me as to what should still be classified and what can be talked about. And I think uh, James Files knows this and anyone else that served in intelligence works. There's some things that don't need to be talked about that a country does to keep her citizens free as far as the defense systems and things like that. So I'm wondering what's declassified. So I, I gave basic information to Ralph Thomas, president of the uh, Worldwide Private Investigators Association. He sent my dad's info out to 10,000 contacts worldwide, came back with 40 people, and I was stunned. I, I started looking at dad's documents he typed up in awards. He also said he did photo interpretation uh, from 1949 at the Na United States Navy Photo Interpretation Center, which, oddly enough, on January 18, 1961, two days before Kennedy took office, Eisenhower wrote an order moving the United States Navy pick to National Photo Interpretation Center under the auspices of the CIA. And it was at that point Eisenhower had already made that order. Some of the film from the assassination years later was sent over to the National Photo Interpretation Center. And who's the person that developed the protocols for that? And I have them typed up on NATO letterhead was my father, the fox in the chicken coop. And he also worked at Aerocolor, which is another firm, Aerospace, that got some of the much more in Nick's film for photo interpretation. Dad did his photo interpretation and his documents and his pictures prove it since 1949. So they came back and actually about seven people had said they seen the other, the Pruder film. French intelligence, Brazil, Poland, London, uh, places in the United States, people here have seen it as far back as 50 years. I even had one guy three weeks ago tell me where he believes a copy of it is or the original and that it's much more professionally done, and it, it appears to be uh, from the right side of the pruder and further back. So people ask me, did your father ever take you to Steely Plaza? He did that one day after we had processed some of the evidence files with Oswald's two wallets and the, and the arrest report, making photo prints, and we, he said, let's take a break and go to lunch. We had at Gus's barbecue and headed over there, and he drove back behind the fence and parked and got out. And um, I'm sorry, who are you talking about who parked behind My father, the my father. You were with him? Yeah, I was 17. We were oh. at the Dallas City Hall Photo Lab because he was the Dallas Fire Department photo chief. Mm -hmm. And when the House Select Committee on Assassination came to the police department to get the evidence on JFK for the House Select Committee, they had to have the best prints possible and multiple prints of the same thing for the investigation and the best that the nation had and the that was in the Navy that led the photo recon over Cuba in vape 62 processed the moon landing film was my father he, he oh, had a cos cosmic clearance from NATO and just because he got out of the Navy he did not quit his work if you look in slide number two dad wrote Ted, hold, hold on hold on before you leave slide number one Slide mm -hmm. number one is about 
claims that your father was the photographer behind the fence on the grassy knoll. Um, so was he, was he in front of the fence, behind the brooder, or behind the fence? He was behind the fence, and then after I heard Mr. Powell speak, he was very focused on what he did, and he and when he and when he finished what he said he did and bent down to put the gun up, he didn't know till years later that there was a lady sitting in a car eating her sandwich at lunch that saw the whole thing and contacted him and described what she saw and made a statement and signed it, and he said that she was correct. That's exactly what he had done. So the way Dad explained it is sometimes when you're doing an operation and the agencies compartmentalize ops, you don't know what everyone on your team's doing and you don't know what other teams are doing. You're focused on your job. And yes, your head's on swivel to your environment. When Lansdale walked up to files and then he left, someone later said they saw two men back there, but then there was one. That was a great explanation Mr. Files gave on why that happened. He did not see this woman, and I don't believe he saw anyone else because he was so focused on, on his mission and duty. And so the people that say they have seen, seen this film, one guy gave me a play-by-play, said it was so much more professionally done. Well, let's yeah. be clear. Your, the claim here is that your father took that film of the assassination. Yes, that is, that is and I asked him when, when we were sitting there that night, uh, and I pieced things together, and he, he had been diagnosed with a fourth type of cancer at 90, and he asked me to help him get his last debriefing. That When he had stomach cancer at 85, they quit doing his yearly debriefings. They thought he died. So I contacted a congressman, and he told me to contact the Dallas FBI office, and they wouldn't help me, and they wouldn't help my uh, my congressman they said anything your father was involved in 50 years ago surely declassified by now mm-hmm. I was frustrated because I knew better so I called naval intelligence and they said well send us what you got by email and I said it can't be handled that way I don't know if this stuff is declassified or not and they never contacted me back so I've talked and sometimes I've been throttled so I have been talked to I have been shot at and I get the messages and then I get told when I can talk again I don't want to do anything to hurt our country but I do know my father was at the highest level you could get with uh, and I actually have audio of him talking where he was CIA naval intelligence master chief photo intelligence for short time FBI and another agency off the books and he had a cosmic clearance from NATO which is the highest you can go it, it doesn't mean you work for NATO. It means the work you can do is, is can get a NATO clearance. And have so... You, have these, you seen your father's film of the assassination? No, and I want to see it someday before I die. I've got leads on where it is and where a copy is, but I'm hoping someday that the, the public can, can see the truth. And if I don't, I, I know what dad told me. When he said, I wish you'd never figured it out, but you need to help me get my last debriefing. And I said, well, that means breaking your oath. Because the kind of level he was at in the agency wasn't an asset or a 5, 10, 30-year person. He was the kind where you take it to the grave. And he was getting debriefed every year of what's declassified now and what's not. And there was things he did that he was more concerned about getting out than JFK. Mm-hmm. And um, and 
you know, like, like Mr. Files, there's some things you don't talk about, like in Laos or Cambodia, and, and that's okay. There's some, there's boundaries these guys have to put around themselves because yeah. of, of uh, commitment to country. But Dad did say in this slide number two, he documented. Yeah, to scroll down to Sean is number two. Mm -hmm. it's, um, it's got text on a yellow background. And basically, he enlisted in the Navy December 17th of 41. He was on the South Pacific, invasion of Guam, occupation of Japan and North China, and discharged. He went to SMU in Dallas for two semesters, and then he went back in the Navy in 47. I think that was his gateway into the agency at that time, because Aunt Ruby Houston, his aunt, whom I knew, was a documented member of the OSS. Her name was Ruby Houston. She worked for R.L. Thornton on Main Street at Mercantile National Bank, and he was allegedly at the Clint Murchison house the night before the assassination. Um, and I believe that was his gateway into the agency. I didn't have documentation on that. Uh, his level of clearance, uh, I was wondering how far back it went until mom pulled out another trunk eight days ago. And we got a lot more documentation that I didn't have before. And it's been scanned and now off property. So he talks about going to the Antarctic and going to Naval Intelligence School. I have envelopes postmarked. Everything I have is not downloaded from the internet. It's original documents or photographs. Uh, and we're talking hundreds, if not a couple of thousands pieces of documentation on, air, on things that he said he did. And when, um, I was, when I was in Dallas, the last day I was there, which was the anniversary, November 22nd, just passed, um, Janet came up to my room with seven suitcases full of photos and documents. Jenna, I'd like to ask you, um, because it's important for the content of this show, could you um, briefly describe for us what your father meant by, in your best understanding, that Lee Harvey Oswald was, quote, on his team for the assassination? Well, we were sitting there one night, and he was looking out the bay window and turned around, and Mom was gone to play bingo like she normally did on the weekend night. And he said, I need to talk with you. And he got up and came to the little bar table and sat down, and he started pounding it with his finger. And he said, I didn't know you'd figure it out. I didn't know you were listening so attentively and that you'd piece it together, much less be writing it down, but I've been writing and I want my last debriefing. I said, well, I have some questions, Dad, because the congressman's going to want to know. And he said, you know, I can't talk about it in the House. All, all his debriefings were outside of the House. And he told me they've been able to listen from satellite since 1947. This is way before digital. So <laughs> I said, well, will you just nod your head yes or no? And once I got him to nodding his head yes or no, then he started saying yes or no. And I said... <laughs> I said, okay, you told me the closest you came to getting caught was we, we, you were on the Enterprise in the spring of 63. And you, the Enterprise was so far off Florida, it was actually in Cuban waters. Russia was supposed to be out, we were supposed to be out. That wasn't the case, and it made a mad dash to the Mediterranean Sea, and Dad's back went out. It was flown to uh, Greece, then Italy, then Bethesda, and then back to Florida, 
and they had told him, we got to get you out of the Navy on a, a medical retirement from your airplane crash in the Antarctic in 55 and get you to Dallas by November. So I actually found documentation on that. Slide number three is an example of them. I'm going to go to the documentation now. Slide number three is an example of some of the aerial mosaics Dad did. Uh, I have them over Cuba, over Washington, and over Dallas. The mosaic is to the left, and if you zoom in with a loop real close, you can find Dewey Plaza in it. And it was in a folder Dad had marked downtown Dallas. So in slide number four, on the left is the whole piece, but what it actually says is on Hotel de Leotion in Paris. And when his back went out, they gave him shore patrol duties so he could rest. He was computing his pension. He put his service member's number on there, his name, and how much he might be getting. And signed by his commander, and then you can see where he came back in, and he wrote, Dallas, November 1963. And this was in March. And uh, Gordon Ferry, and I believe uh, Mr. Files also said, March is the time frame that uh, in the regicide book, Operation Zipper began, which was the code name they state was for the assassination of Mr. Kennedy. That's correct. March 1963 was when the decision was made to kill Kennedy. And at this point, we were trying to intercept, and there's now photos released from the intelligence of how we were the Americans were boarding Soviet merchant ships to inspect them to make sure they didn't have anything on them. And some of them had, uh, at that time, they had uh, Russian soldiers on them. So, again, the intelligence work Dad did, we'll get to the Antarctic in a minute referencing that. But I said, Dad, um, the, the film canisters, I, I think I sent those to you. I don't think they're here. I thought was little bitty 35 millimeter film canisters. Aerial film canisters are about the size of round oatmeal containers. And they lay on their side. Yes? I'm going to leave that as the cliffhanger. We are at the top of the hour, and it's a hard break. So you're listening to the other side of midnight, and we're listening to Chana Gale. Uh, Tell us about what was going on with her father, Freddie Spainhauer. And uh, we're going to hear about the canisters when we return after break. The other side of midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and nonlinearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. The other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. 
Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back to the other side of midnight. This is Kintia co-hosting with Barbara Honiger, and we're standing in for Richard C. Hoagland, who is off off internet and no power because of an ice storm. So we wish him well. We hope he can stay warm with his little petro heater. And we were just listening to Tana Gale tell us about these film canisters that her father, Freddie Spainhauer, had. So take it up, Tana. Well, um, Tana, don't forget, after you talk about the canisters, to go back and try to answer the question, in what sense did your father mean that Lee Harvey Oswald was on his team in Dallas? Well, I have to build up to that to answer that question. I will remember to do that. Okay. Uh, So I asked him about the film canisters, being familiar with, I mean, my first camera at four was a brownie box. And I'll never forget the day I got the digital in 1999. But this was this was before that. And I said, well, film canisters, I'm thinking 35 millimeter film or something like that, 120, 220. And he said, uh, no, these were the aerial film canisters. And he would teach me the science behind it. And I didn't want to go into that, all those details. Uh, Keith and I had a good conversation about some of that. But he said, film. And I said, I got him talking now. He's not just saying yes or no. I said, well, uh, what was uh, on the film? He didn't answer. And I said, I'm looking at him. I know his snarky little look when there's more to it. And I said, film wasn't the only thing in those canisters, was it? He said, I was sweating bullets. I was going through Love Field, which he used to take me on his drops. I was about four years old. And I remember because he would have toys inside his briefcase. And sometimes the briefcase would be handcuffed to his wrist, and sometimes it wouldn't. And uh, I asked Mama one day, why? I got to go on drops with Daddy, and my brother didn't. And, and and she said, well, your brother was more distracting. And if your dad took a kid with him, he was less likely to be noticed as just a man there in a suit, military uniform, or a regular suit. And he'd have these little brand of airplanes inside of it or toys for me to play with and uh and I, re- I remember some of these. He'd take me to North Park Mall and teach me how to watch people and what color clothes they had on and memorize their eyes, their shoes, pretend like I knew what they were doing for a living. And, and cars go by us, what kind of make and model was that? And it was a game for us. And I didn't know other kids weren't raised that way till I got older. And, uh, I mean, our house was at the top of a hill with floodlights on every corner, mirrors, a big nine-foot mirror in the living room so we could see who's coming up out of the woods. We have intercom system in every room and outside so we can listen to who's coming up. I'm like, well, the other kids I was friends with didn't have this cool stuff. I thought it was pretty neat. So I asked Dad, what else was in the film canisters? He said, I almost got caught. 
at left field. They wanted to open them. I said the week of the assassination because he got back from Paris to Bethesda, Jacksonville. We got to Dallas November 4th, stayed with my grandparents till November 15th. November 15th, suddenly we had a furnished house on Riverway. Our stuff was still in Navy transport. And a guy knocks on the door Friday night, November 15th, and hands a piece of paper. Mother answers it. She's told me the same story. Dad told me the same story. A guy named Joe is there, doesn't give his last name, and hands Dad a piece of paper and says, this is where you go to work next week, the week of the assassination. So the door shuts, and I hear them fussing over it in the kitchen. And about an hour later, a woodark apple goes through the plate gap's front window just to send a message in case he didn't want to fall through. So he shows up at the designated place that Monday and tells me all that week he's flying in and out of Love Field going to Boston delivering things in the briefcase. I said, well, what was in the briefcase? He said, sometimes I knew, sometimes I didn't. I said, well, how do you know who to meet them? He said, we would use phrases like vegetables or fruits. And I said, well, when you landed at the airport, how do you know which cab to get into? He said, I'd stand there and watch, and the cabs would leave, and if one would still be sitting there a while, I'd go up to the door and ask them, hey, the tomatoes look pretty green on the vine, and then the cabbie would go, no, they're ripe and red ready. So he would know he had the right guy, and he had no clue where he would be taken, and they'd take him to this warehouse, and sometimes he would stand outside the door, and they'd take the briefcase, and sometimes he'd go in with it, and then he'd come back. And sometimes he knew what was in it. Sometimes he didn't. I said, okay, so you're carrying now not the briefcase, but these film canisters through Love Field. Were you wearing your military uniform? Yes. And he said, I had to look official. And I told them not to open the film canisters, that there was unexposed aerial film in it. And they argued for a long time, kept wanting to open them, and they finally decided not to. And I said, Daddy, what else was in there? And he said, paper. I said, paper rolled up with the film or just paper he goes no paper rolled up inside the film and this film you see is a negative unexposed and it's 125 to 250 feet long and he explained to me in detail of how he set up the system for the cameras and the youtube planes and when the photographer couldn't go in explained how he fixed the rig the button and had all the diagrams grown for like gary powers plane to trigger the camera, when to get the correct altitude, speed, humidity to get the clear shots, and how it, it would advance the film on the spring system as it went by the shutter door of the open bay of the plane. So I said, okay, if there's paper inside these film canisters, I looked at him and I said, what was on the paper, Daddy? And he said, the plans. I said, to Dallas that day, you're talking about Dealey Plaza? And he said, yes. And I said, I didn't want to ask him if Lee shot anybody or if he did. I, I was trying to figure out a way to ask him. I said, did Lee handle a gun that day? And he said, yes. He was on my team. He handled the gun that day, but he did not fire one. And he took out the pictures that he he had gotten from the house like coming assassination. He got to keep a little set of a few of them. And he said, this is where we put the rifle in the school book depository. And when he said we, I don't know if it was him and Lee or him and someone else. And he said, the closest I came to getting caught, they didn't look in it. He said, I knew 
whoever screwed up uh, was going to be the patsy and that someone was being set up to be the patsy. He knew that Lee was naval intelligence with him. I mean, Dad got in trouble in 49 for counterfeiting military ID cards. He showed me how they counterfeited Lee's military ID cards and Alex Hidell and the backyard photo. And actually the cutout for Lee in the backyard photo uh, the cutout from the police archives is now in the University of North Texas Digital Archives. I found it last week, and he showed me how they did it. So uh, I said, um, can you tell me who was behind it and why? And he did, but I, I was so traumatized at that point and upset to realize. He, he said, what you got to understand is we didn't – none of us really knew it was an operation to to take him out. Um, I had been in service in the Navy my whole life and left our country. I was a patriot. He said, I did my duty. Just like Mr. Fowle said, you did your duty. And when you're at war, you've got to defend yourself. But when you're on American soil, you don't think about that. And uh, he said, when he found out that week, he was told to go work somewhere and found out what was really going on. He asked to get out. And they came to him and said, (laughs) buddy, don't get out. This is where daddy used. Or oh, you're dead. Your wife's dead. Your kids are dead. Your parents are dead. Your siblings and their spouses are dead. And I go back and look at the picture of Lee's face. And I'm thinking, he must have got told the same message. Well, last summer, I was digging around in the uh, cellar, getting rid of the last of his documents. And I found my grandfather's will dated October 27, 1963. Now, my dad must have told his dad what was going on. And his back was against the wall. And first thing you know, I'm finding these documents that my grandfather doing his will three weeks before, my dad taking out life insurance, and he had no way out. And at that point, I said, can you excuse me for a minute? I went to the bathroom, and I closed the door, and I fell down to the floor, and I threw up in the toilet, and I just started crying, just sobbing uncontrollably. I got an answer or something that had been weighing on his heart his whole life since 63 like he had not told anybody. And he he told me Mama didn't know the whole story. She does now. She's really happy with the book that Jack Roth put out. She feels redeemed because these wives paid an ultimate price as well. And and I know he was supposed to take it to the grave, but uh, he had no choice. And a lot of these men, you know, uh, they do their duty, but sometimes when they don't want to do their duty, they do it anyway because they know the consequences are pretty ugly. So in what sense was Lee on his team? I, I didn't. The things I know now that I wish I could go back and ask him, I would. I have a million questions I wish I could ask my dad. Do I, do I understand? Do I recall correctly when you spoke at the same JFK conference uh, as I did a few years back? I thought you told me uh, in a one-on-one conversation that night, we had a four-hour one-on-one conversation. I think I recall you, you believe that the, the, the famous Minot, M-I-N-O-T, camera that Lee Harvey Oswald reportedly had that your father gave that to him? I'm I'm not recalling that, but it would it would be a possibility. I what I do when I talk is I only talk to fact of what I know know firsthand. Mm-hmm. And when people try to get me to suppose something, 
I, I can reach conclusions, but dad never said he did. I do know for a fact that he would always get the latest and greatest photo equipment before anybody else. Before Polaroid came out with the Polaroid, he had that camera. Before TI came out with the first handheld calculator, he had it. He was always getting the first best top-notch at everything to test drive it before other people did. Okay, before you go on to, and then we'll, um, we have about 45 minutes left and for, for people to ask questions of all the guests. But before we go on uh, briefly to your father's being a photographer for Admiral Byrd in the Antarctica mission, um, uh, if you could just remember anything else that is directly relevant to the JFK assassination with your father in Dallas. It is it your understanding from your father himself that your father did take either still photos or maybe film, you know, moving film of the assassination itself behind the picket fence, just like Jim Files was behind the picket fence. I can say with every confidence that my father confessed to being CIA, Naval Intelligence, and, and was a Navy Master Chief involved in Dallas before, during, and after, and that he filmed that day in Diddy Plaza. Uh, I'm presuming from the research we're doing, he was behind the grassy knoll from the, the time he took me down there and what other researchers who have seen the film have said. But Dad did tell me where he went immediately after how he navigated through Dealey Plaza, back behind the school book, got in his 1957 white, golden white Dodge Coronet, wiggled around through downtown to Grand Avenue, which turns into Garland Road, Highway 78, where his cousin Jesse Ray Houston was president of First National Bank Garland. He may have handed something off to him. I have no idea because both of them shared Aunt Ruby as an aunt who was OSS and probably still CIA. Because when I worked at Mercantile National Bank, everyone remembered my Aunt Ruby and her 50 years at Mercantile Bank. Okay, so so to, to put a close the circle on this, you are doing your very best to follow up to actually obtain either the original or a copy of your father's film of the assassination. Right. And what I need researchers to do, they can contact me uh, either through this program or just Google me. You'll be, I'm pretty easy to find. Uh, the picture of dad downtown that day, I've got pictures of what he looked like in 63, holding cameras and not holding cameras. And I have a picture of the car he drove that day. Mm -hmm. and, and I would he, love in all these pictures long, out there for him to be he found. Long, he was wearing a long black Navy coat, correct? He had his Navy pea coat, and we did a recreation of that, of uh, the black trench coat man in front of Dealey Plaza immediately afterwards with Scott Reed of Scotland, and because he's about the same height my dad was. And uh, well, that's I've the got, recreation, Scott. Yeah, Reed. that's that, yeah, and and so we were trying to to see if he might have coat or not. I still have that coat, and I still have his cameras from the Antarctic and tripods and um. A lot of material, too much material. Okay, if we could uh, very quickly move through Antarctica because it's not directly related to JFK, and then we'll open it up um, back to James Files and Pamela um, and Jim Scott for any questions of you. And I would like to let you know, Jenna, that yes. I spoke to Pamela Ray Files today, and they did get your message that 
uh, you wanted to meet with them in Dallas. They couldn't do it. They were too busy, but they looked very much forward to talking with you one-on-one. Well, thank you. Um, Thank you very much, Pamela. I appreciate that. And James, Uh, we were going to talk briefly about um, Antarctica and even though it's another component of my father's life uh, about eight years before, it actually is directly tied to the JFK assassination. Tell and, us yes, it is. And, and that will become as a surprise to many people. And sometimes it takes a while to navigate through that, but I'll give you the Cliff Notes version. Um, every government in the world makes plans, 5, 10, 20, 50-year plans. It's just the things you do in managing the infrastructure and people of a society. And uh, when good technology comes along, the government wants to use it to help navigate that country along until something new technology comes along better, and then they release the old technology to the public. And that's been going on ever since Cain picked up a rock and whacked Abel. Uh, tools are tools. <laughs> so uh, and they did a plan uh, to uh, – Admiral Byrd really wanted to set up a permanent base for scientific studies, and this was before the Antarctic Treaty, and, and different countries were claiming their stakes to the land. And, and Admiral Byrd said that the Arctic on the north part of the world is, um, is ice surrounded by land. And the ice is 10,000 feet deep, whereas in the Antarctic, it's 10,000 feet tall, and it's land surrounded by ice. And that's an interesting way to look at it, since he was a polar explorer for both ends. And Dad knew how to type very well. He got a little closet and was typing up the entire inventory of the United States Photographic Division. They stuck him in a closet with a desk, a chair, and a typewriter and index cards. And it was on the same floor as the Admiral's fleet allowance. And he, uh, he, he, he got called in one day to one of the Admirals and said, you're nervous being around high brass, aren't you? And he said, yeah. He said, I'm enlisted. You're an officer. And he goes, well, you're the photographer. And I'm going to tell you the same thing Omar Bradley told you at Guam. You get to tell us how to straighten our ties and zip our flies. So you make us look good. And so behind closed doors, Dad didn't want many people knowing this, that him and Admiral Byrd became friends. And and Admiral Byrd asked Dad, you can call me Dickie. His name was uh, Elmo R. Byrd, Richard Byrd, short name Dick or Dickie. And um, Mr. Byrd had explained that he had this cousin that was in the oil industry. His name was Harold Dryhole Byrd, and he was a distant third cousin. And had money in Dallas, had a place at White Rock Lake that looked like Monticello, Jefferson's Monticello. And Harold Bird owned the school book depository, had bought it from his oil money. And one year in 1936, Harold Bird, who owned the school book depository, decided to use some of his money to play on at the Texas State Fair, the Texas 100-year centennial, and call it Little America. And he did this for a distant cousin, showcase all his polar explorations. And because uh, Harold Bird, the school book depository, had spent money on his cousin, Admiral Bird, when Admiral Bird, that was 1936. Well, here comes 1954, and they're planning on going to the Antarctic. And Admiral Byrd can't get any funding from Congress, and he tries to go to his cousin, who won't give it to him, and, and they start having a fight over it. So Byrd is left getting um, what you call uh, 
public monies from the National Science Foundation, Life Magazine, um, Walt Disney, and some other entities to make this destination trip of a bunch of Navy ships to bring all the materials needed to set up a base in Antarctic. It was going to be 1955-56 was the advance party Dad was a part of. So I didn't believe this, this story Dad told me till after he died. I'm finding all the documentation of where Dad went to visit Walt Disney. It's on Navy letterhead, his orders, and what Walt wanted out of it. Uh, Life magazine, Fritz Grove went as a photographer. Dad wasn't the only photographer. There were other photographers, but Dad was often listed as a CB because he was intelligent. <clears throat> We're going to link this back to Dallas. Yes, and, and and I already have through his cousin who owned the School Book Depository. So they wanted to build a base in the Antarctic for science and studies in defense, but then when the Antarctic Treaty was done in 59 or 60, we agreed not to use it for any military purposes. When Dad said they developed the space program, they had an idea to put these space satellites around the world and that uh, you could use them for weather and radar and science studies and cooling and warming and all. And they had to fight, figure out a way. If you put them up there, they won't fall to the earth. They won't float away. There's that zone they never fall out of. And how to keep them powered. They got invented the solar power and all that. Well, we have other technology in those satellites. And you have to triangulate. We had NASA in Florida, NASA in Texas, and then the Antarctic. And by the time you spend a space program in the 50s, they planned on the space program in the 60s and 70s and 80s to get all these satellites positioned around the world. We have defense technology in these satellites, which people know today is due. But we had that technology that... That's spell out direct, direct, direct weapons energy weapons and people have suspected it because now we have so many cameras around the world people are kind of did i get a picture of this in hawaii and you know the forest fires in california and it's something very lightly touched on like the unidentified aerial phenomenons that don't make people are not very comfortable talking about it and frankly when we're going about our everyday lives making ends meet and paycheck to paycheck People really aren't that concerned about what's in the satellite as long as the healthcare system works and the banking system works. So, but so they had this, what yeah, was they the had, earliest year that there were directed energy weapons in U.S. satellites around the Earth? Well, that's what Dad said that they were. He was. They became very afraid if Kennedy brokered peace with Khrushchev and could not do that. The Joint Chiefs of Staff was arguing with the CIA. Uh, could they trust Kennedy to not reveal that weapons technology? They did not want it revealed back then because we were just launching the space program. And the plan for the space program is once they got all the satellites launched, then they would launch another branch of the military called the U.S. Space Force. Chana, I have a question. This is Robert Morningstar. You brought up the subject. I'm going to ask you just for a yes or no question. Um, did your father ever mention UFOs in regard to Antarctica or any other missions that he was on? Yes. Because I'm going to touch on that uh, in the, the end of the show uh, right. regarding the importance of that subject to the death of John F. Kennedy. Thank you. Yeah. And so there was a myriad of reasons, and we all know that Kennedy was going to print um, money that was government-backed and not backed by a private Federal Reserve banking system. And I asked Dad the catapulting reasons we know about Vietnam and the drug cartel from the Golden Triangle 
and Bell Helicopter and, and Lady Bird Johnson's investment in that and people wanting power and people trading power for, you know, dividing the world up for the drug trade, sex traffic and trade. So what we've got here is three branches of government, constitutional, um, the Congress, the Supreme Court and the president. And when communism fell in Russia, where FBI works in the United States, where's the CIA going to work? Well, they divided the world up, and now we have good agents and bad agents actually literally fighting each other over this power and greed. And they're actually – they tell our president what they can and can't see. They have no constitutional foundation to operate as a fourth branch of the government. It's a structural problem. It's an accountability issue. So in the Antarctic, uh, we gave face and said it's just for science and stuff, but – my understanding is there is a big fight over who's controlling parts of the Antarctic because the brains of our – okay, I'll get whacked for this, but what have I got to lose? I love our country. That a lot of the brains for our systems, the space system that our healthcare monetary system runs off of goes down from the Antarctic. It's the hardest place in the world for terrorists to get to. I hope it's, that makes sense. It's part of the – you've explained in the previously to me and others, that the Antarctic base, um, along with one in Florida, and where's the third one? Texas. Texas, Florida, and Antarctica, that you need these three controlling locations in order to uh, have the uh, control system for these satellites that include directed energy weapons. Well, that was the original plan back in the 50s. Those sites have been moved since then because the information was compromised and made public. So what you have here is a networking system, and you have a backup system, and you have a backup to the backup system, just like there's a backup system in place if there's a run on the cash reserves from the Federal Reserve. You know, they always have Plan B with scripted money, and they hope to never use Plan B and C. Um, when I worked for Vin Prothrow at Dallas Semiconductor, he wanted a tornado plan, and, 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 and what would happen if the head of the company bowed out and his friend at TI died of a heart attack? Well, so we did our tornado plan, and I, I wanted to be at home with my kids, so I left the corporate world in 42 suits behind and had one more kid at 42. And eight months later, Vin dropped out of a heart attack. And before he did, he had introduced me to George Bush. I'm like, have these people have been around my life, my whole life. I've not understand the piecemeal of it. And I respect our country so much, but it, there's components that need to be reined in that are out of control. And I, I'm not saying anything nobody doesn't already know. Uh, I just want to lend credibility to the fact that uh, things aren't always as they appear and that uh, Kennedy was doing his best to lead our country. There were factions that believed he had committed treason. I don't know anything about that. I can't give opinions on other people's research. I just can only tell the public what my dad told me. And he felt like he was doing his duty. And then when he found out his duty was morally wrong, he literally wanted out and begged to get out. And after Dallas, he said the entire unit was disbanded, all of them. But he was allowed to stay because his family had been in Dallas County since the 1850s cotton-picking farm boy, and his parents were there, his siblings were there, and then they started using him by positioning him at agency front companies like Arrow Color, and then at the Dallas Police Department, then at, then at the Dallas Fire Department. And it, it didn't stop till almost the day he died. 
Okay, there's one minute to the hard break at the bottom of the hour. And uh, when we come back, I'd like to have any of the guests uh, leading with James and Pamela Files and Jim Scott uh, ask any questions of you or each other. And then we want to close with Robert Morningstar's items, which we haven't been able to get to after about, uh, after about 10 minutes of that. The other side of midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Listen while you travel or as an environment to your endeavors. $0.08 an episode, $0.02.5 per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com. you have a schedule of how you'd like this last half hour to go i don't think half hour is enough time but we got to do it so barbara take it away well um i'd just like to ask any of the other guests um if we could lead with james and pamela files do you have questions of channa um uh, questions of robert morningstar i know you know robert well but you don't you this is the first you've heard Shanna's incredible story about her father. Um, we've heard that her father took film of the assassination and could even have taken film uh, of, of you, James Files, shooting from behind the fence. Um, that is not determined for sure yet, but it's a possibility. And Shanna is trying to, to get that film and of course would share it uh, once she does. So. Um, James and Pamela, do you have questions of Chana? Um, Chana, do you have questions of James and Pamela? Yes, we're here. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, we were just taking a break and we just got back to the um, to the phone. Yeah, do you have any questions for, for Chana um, before she may have some questions for you? Hey. Jim, did you have a, a question for Chana? Did you have a question for uh, about where Dad might have been behind you? Yeah, because I think that's a real important thing. Where, if you would have saw him, what you would have done? When I was behind the fence, I walked across from the railroad yard to the fence, and those two women in a brown car. Nobody else was around at that point. Once I got to the fence, I wasn't looking behind me. If I had heard a car door, I would have. I would have looked, but as long as I heard nothing, I didn't look. So it's possible I never saw your father because I wasn't looking for him. Right. I was and it, to the primary target. That, and Dad never said he filmed the shooter. 
his 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 assignment was to film the car, and I don't think he, I don't, I think he knew better to not film a shooter, because you don't you don't out the people that's on other teams. Um, that's that's something but I do know that he had I knew very well where the Lamplighter Motel was or the L shape of it the swimming pool out front Um, Mm -hmm. I do know he used to mom and him used to go down to um, the uh, Longhorn Ballroom that Dewey groomed on Uh, Dewey's brother sat with me when mama was baptized and uh, I know Ruby had gone down there dad used to tell me about his trips over to uh, the Egyptian lounge and and other things, but he didn't really like going into details of that. And you, James, I really respect your fact about seeing Jesus. And you know what I whispered in your ear that day? Um, my dad did too. He, it tormented him most of his life. It changed him. Um, he uh, he was doing mission, doing duty. Uh, there, there's no way out. And, and and this generation doesn't understand the training these military men go through. And, and doing their assignments, and I had to think along on hard time. He wrote a lot about the church and uh, the proper way to take communion, and he said that he had nothing against no man, that everyone needed to work out their own salvation, and before Daddy died, he wrote a book of prayers, and he said, I'm so afraid I'm going to forget how to pray as I grow older, and, and that really, really bothered him, and so he typed his prayers up, and I'm I'm going to find a way to get those to you because it certainly has helped me work through realizing hearing you and what you went through in your career for your country and, and the choices uh, that weren't always choices. uh, The, this generation doesn't understand that kind of training and commitment. And, and I I can't always wrap my brain around it, but duty is something that dad instilled in, in my values and, uh, it's it's hard to understand. I know the country's on a right wrong track. Some people say, I can't believe Mr. Files is going public with this. They don't believe him. And I'm like, you just need to listen to a story because he's older now. And if something happens to him, it just validates the story. But he is struggling and uh, he, has, he has found God and everyone. We all of us stand before God. And I thank you for sharing your story with the world. Thank you, and I thank you for a lot of other things, too, and for some of the information you gave tonight that I knew things about. And uh, like I say, it's been a long road, five holes with a lot of memories with it. You're going to make me cry, but I appreciate you uh, saying that. Thank you very much. Well, the, the, you will be able to communicate with China and vice versa in the very near future with all the details from both sides. Uh, and you'll be able to work out a lot more of what really happened. I'm certain of that. Robert Morningstar, yes. um, could you come in, please, um, for yes, the last yes. 20 minutes or so? Yes, and hold up your items and ask any questions that you would like of Shanna or the Fileses. Right. Okay. Well, first question I have is for James. James, thank you for being on the program today. This is historic. And I have... Uh, one question. You said that Frank Sturgis was about 90 feet to your left. Was Frank Sturgis there as a shooter? No, he was not. What was his purpose he was, there? Was I he a think spotter? he just wanted to watch in this story. Everybody knew about the big event and all that they talked about. But Frank Sturgis, 
out of curiosity, just wanted to be there. And again, maybe he felt I needed my back watch that I might be betrayed. I see. Thank you for that. Well, I'll go to my items. And first and foremost, folks, I want to thank Barbara Honecker, James Scott, and James Files for helping me fulfill my life's mission. Everyone is born for a purpose. Some people are lucky enough to find it. Some people are lucky enough to be called to it in very significant ways. I'd like to say that James Files and I have a lot in common. Both of us have been guided to this moment by the Spirit of Christ. Both of us have had experiences, direct experiences with the Lord. Both of us are products of United States government mind control. Both of us underwent training from the age of eight. Mr. Files was taken at the tender age of eight and sent to Camp Hero in on Long Island, New York, which was very close, as a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, it's in Montauk, New York, which is famous for another huge mind control project called the Montauk Project, which involved mind control at a very, very high level, including the paranormal. My training, I volunteered at the tender age of 10 for something that was called the Sea Cadets, which became the American Nautical Cadets. And I was in that organization for five years, during which I was mentored by officers who were members of the Office of Naval Intelligence. My first captain was Captain Peter Luthi. And there are two things that are most significant about my training, indoctrination uh, in the Sea Cadets. I was a member of the John Paul Jones Division here in Manhattan. One day, Captain Luthi took us into a room and he showed us color slides of Hiroshima. With the Office of Naval Intelligence, he was one of the first people to go into Hiroshima within weeks of the atomic bombing. He took color photographs, slides of the devastation. I have seen the horrors of Hiroshima as no one else has seen. No one shows the real horror in living color like Captain Peter Luthi showed to us. I saw puddles of people. I saw fields of bones and skeletons. I saw the shadows imprinted on walls of people who were vaporized. And at the end of that session, Captain Peter Luthi asked us all to take an oath to do everything in our powers to prevent nuclear war. And we all took that oath to do everything in our powers to see that we never engage in nuclear war. The next instance that is extremely memorable and significant, and especially with regard to the assassination of President Kennedy, was another day, another night, it was on Friday nights after the school week that we would go to 54th Street and 8th Avenue to a school there and um, participate 
in the discipline, the marching, the instruction of the sea cadets. He took us in a very, very serious mode. I remember he was chain smoking and he took us into a room and he was dead serious. Unlike any other time that uh, we had had instruction from him. And he and Commander Antonelli, Mike Antonelli was a former Marine who was his uh, vice commander, I would call him. Captain Peter Luthi said, gentlemen, he always called us gentlemen, we have a request. We would like you to take this message to your parents. We, the Office of Naval Intelligence, have learned that the mafia is planning to take over the U.S. government. And there is a danger that mafia members will infiltrate the U.S. government and try to take control of it. And we were all quite shocked. We knew what mafia meant, but we couldn't understand how that could possibly happen in the United States. So I asked Captain Luthi, Captain, how, how is this possible? And he said, Bob, we've learned that there are certain corrupt politicians in Congress and in the Senate who are working for the mafia. And then the thought occurred to me, and I said, well, Captain Luthi, what are we supposed to do if they do that, if the mafia takes over the government? Captain Luthi said, Bob, the first thing you have to do is to make sure that you and your family are safe. And after that, you must do everything in your power to help to restore constitutional government in the United States. That's an unforgettable event. That was in 1959. And in 1963, we found out what he was talking about. With regard to my items, items from one to seven, I believe are the seven articles that Jim Scott and I have co-authored since March. March of this year, Barbara notified me that I would receive an email from a certain gentleman named Jim Scott. Jim Scott contacted me. We began our conversation, our collaboration, and he was the one who revealed to me the zipper files, which are extremely important. They are, they are the proof that the Department of Defense, led by the CIA's planning division, in league with high-ranking members of the services, the FBI, members of the Secret Service, and the Mafia, plotted the assassination of President Kennedy between March of 1963 and November 14th of 1963 when the final meeting cataloged by Robert Trumbull Crowley, Director of Clandestine Operations for the CIA, who kept meticulous notes. Every meeting, every person who attended with code code names or symbols, every meeting, the subject of every meeting, and the people that were there. They included 
William Sullivan, Assistant Direct, Deputy Director of the FBI. They included Walter Jenkins, Principal Assistant to Lyndon Johnson. They included Sam Giancana, Johnny Roselli. They also he, included John McCone, who was John the CIA Co- Director. They included George Bush Sr., David Atlee Phillips, James Jesus Angleton. <laughs> Head of Counterintelligence for the CIA, Alan Dulles, whom JFK had fired as CIA director before he appointed McCone, Robert Trumbull Crowley, who leaked the Operation Zipper document, William King Harvey, Major General Edward Lansdale, uh, J. Edgar Hoover, and uh, William Sullivan, uh, Deputy FBI Director. Yes. And uh, representatives from the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the Secret Service. Mafia members, as you mentioned, Giacana, Roselli, and Nicoletti. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to remind people in my in my Barbara's items, if you go to my items, uh, number three is the online full Operation Zipper document. And for anyone who is not uh, actually on the website for the other side of midnight, I'm going to state for the audio record what that full zipper document online. You can read it for yourself. It's HTTPS colon forward slash forward slash archive, A-R-C-H-I-V-E dot org, O-R-G, forward slash details, D-E-T-A-I-L-S forward slash operation, O-P-E-R-A-T-I-O-N dash not a forward slash, but a dash, and then the word zipper, Z-I-P-P-E-R. And you should be sitting down when you read that document. Yes. Go ahead. Yes. Uh, can, can I'd like I to... Question? Uh, oh, yes, go ahead. I'm noticing that document is seven pages, and the one that Dad gave me on Operation Zipper is 26 pages. Yes. Do you have it? Yes, I do. So is this something not known or I shouldn't have or what? No, you should share it with us. Okay. So the, really? the seven pages that that has been published on this podcast radio show, there there's more. So should I just – we'll talk off online how to get it publicized. Very yeah. good. But I've been wondering the same, for the same question because I saw the, the pagination, the numbers on the pages that there were gaps. But the important thing is that we have the big picture. Uh, several countries were involved in this besides the United States. Uh, Great Britain, uh, MI6, France, everyone knew what was going on. Charles de, Gaulle, Charles de Gaulle came and told them he knew that French assassins were involved. A big part of it is the drug trade whole reason for Vietnam, people don't know why we were in Vietnam. Well, it had to do with the drug trade out of the Golden Triangle. And another fine Marine, Gordon Ferry, revealed to me and us that de Gaulle had a meeting with the director of the CIA in 1967 and pleaded with them to win the war in Vietnam, that it was essential to the French government, Vietnam, be accessible because without Vietnam, the French Corsican mafia and the French government could not 
smuggle the heroin out of the Golden Triangle, Laos and Cambodia, because they needed the rivers of Vietnam to transport it, the heroin, to coastal cities from which it could be shipped. That is a very important point. The next point is that Lyndon Johnson was involved. As I said in a previous program, when we found out the names, the code names, the Secret Service gave the president, Jackie, and the vice president, I was uh, really surprised at Lyndon Johnson's uh, code name. President Kennedy was called Lancer. Jackie was called Lace. And Lyndon Johnson was called Volunteer. And the question is, what was he volunteering for? Well, the answer is he was volunteering to be president of the United States after the assassination of President Kennedy because the zipper file shows that he was knowledgeable, he was recruited, and that he lived in fear that the same thing would be done to him. So ever since the assassination of President Kennedy succeeded, every president has basically lived under the gun. Every president has been made aware that if you get out of line, if you disagree with the agenda of the deep state, look what happened to Kennedy. And when they show you those falsified photographs, the autopsy photographs, which are not President Kennedy, the message to anyone who's looking at them saying, listen, little man, Look what we did to the President of the United States. Think about what we can do to you. And that fear is inculcated, ingrained in every politician. As soon as they get to Washington, every congressman, every senator, newly elected, has to go through three days of orientation. And that is when they lay down the law. And that is when idealistic politicians who go there thinking they're going to represent their party and their people wind up learning that there is only one party. party not, is- only, not only Washington politicians, Jesse Ventura, when he was the first independent uh, elected to a governorship of a state, um, what was that, Michigan? Or Minnesota. Minnesota, yes, you're right. Absolutely right. He was taken down into the basement of his of his own uh, new office as governor of the state of Minnesota. And the law was laid down to him by representatives of the CIA, the military, and the FBI. Right. So I would like to point uh, our audience's attention to, to my items. From one to seven, they are the essays, uh, the articles that I've published on Substack. I have the Morningstar report is on Substack.com. It's easy to find my report, Robert Morningstar, one word, dot Substack.com. So James Scott or Jim Scott, as uh, he prefers to be called, and I began with primary target JFK part one, the truth about the JFK assassination. And then we went on with the handlers and the controllers, the eyewitness on the grassy knoll, part three, that is James Files himself. Part four is Cuba, Castro, the CIA, and the French connection. I just told you about the French connection and their need to have access to the rivers of Vietnam to ship out the heroin that 
was sent around the world to poison nations and topple governments. I'm very proud of uh, part seven. The Times of London breaks the JFK assassination cover-up. Now, if you go to Barbara's links, she has a link to the the Times of London. However, to read the article, you have to subscribe. So I subscribed, and I have the article, and I have republished the in its entirety with commentaries uh, on my part about certain it's, sections. It's also, it's also readable in, in whole, including the photograph in my item number, uh, whatever it is, number two. Yeah. Well, I, when I went to number two, it takes you to the, um, you can't read it. It requires that you subscribe. It's a really good price, folks. I think you should subscribe to the London Times. We owe them a great debt of gratitude. And Mr. Hugh Tomlinson, uh, it's a really good bargain at the moment. It's a pound per month. I think that's about yep, a dollar. By the way, on my item number two, you hmm. can read, just click on it, you can read the whole text with the photographs. It's all there. You don't need to subscribe. Hey, Barbara. Yeah. I think we need to allow James the opportunity to make a few comments before Absolutely. here. And I, I just want to say one last thing that there's two things that stand out about James files that prove he is who he is. If you'll look up online, the photograph of Felix Rodriguez and Che Guevara in Bolivia, right before they executed Che Guevara, James files is standing behind Che Guevara. That's the left side of his face. Um, and he's also photographed in the Operation 40 group photograph in Mexico City. He's the third guy on the right side. He's misidentified on the Spartacus identification or educational website as some Cuban with the name Loco, but that's James Files. If he was in Mexico City with the CIA Operation 40 in, in 63, and then with Felix Rodriguez executing Che Guevara in the jungles of Bolivia in 67, He's who he says he is. You'll find all these photographs in the articles. Jim, um, yeah, people just need to know again that the very first item in Barbara's items, my items, is your entire PowerPoint from the historic November 21st Dallas event with James Files. And that photograph and many others, almost 80 slides, everyone can see all the slides by clicking on my item number one. Uh, James, I also like want to add that Chana will be sending me the full zipper file, and I will be adding it to her items in the next three or four days. Very Great. Good. And please forward to all of us on the, on the call. Yes. I think you should promote James and Pam's book also real quickly before we run oh, out of absolutely. time. Absolutely. Yes. Thank you very much for, for reminding me of that. So, um, there are three books. Uh, James and Pamela Files have three books. And um, uh, Pamela, if you could give the website again, please, where all three books, including the most recent, which is Primary Target, colon, JFK, um, how they can order them uh, through the website. If you could give that website again. Oh, okay. Um, if you want to order Interview with History and Primary Target, JFK, and you want a signed copy from James Files and I, it's 
JFK Murder, James Files, all one word, JFK Murder, James Files dot Weebly dot com, and that's W E E B L Y dot com. JFK Murder, James Files dot Weebly dot com. Those are for autographed books. They're going to be a little more expensive if you order them that way, but they will be autographed with a thumbprint. Okay, and if you just want to get a book and check it out, uh, you can go to Author House, the publisher, and you can get an ebook, paperback, or hard copy, hardcover, and that's AuthorHouse.com or you know the place that starts with the A on the internet. That I don't like to give many advertising; they don't need it. But you can always get a book that way as well. But if you want an autograph book, you need to go to our website, which is JFK Murder, James Weebly.com, and we'll be happy to send you an autographed copy with the thumbprint. And we also send out a couple signed and thumbprinted um, 8x10 pictures, too, if, if you want to get the autograph. And I want to point out that your website is on the page as well in your bio section. Yeah. Barbara, I'd like to quickly finish off my items, if I may. Number six is a photo composite that I did 30 years ago, practically. 30 years uh, ago. Yeah. Right side, J.D. Tippett. Left side, President Kennedy. J.D. Tippett's body was used to doctor the autopsy. His brain is what was submitted to the Warren Commission autopsy. Number seven is President Kennedy's memo to NASA, CIA, and the DOD to plan joint ventures on space expressions. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Okay, have a good day.